Welcome everyone. Uh, welcome to the April 14th, uh, 2021 Board of Trustees meeting. Uh, Madam Clerk, can we go right into roll call, please? Yes, Trustee Banerjee. Here. <clears throat> Trustee Bouquet. Here. Trustee Blue. Here. Trustee Dong is going to be late today. Trustee Esteen. Here. Trustee Fox. Here. Trustee Jensen. Here. Trustee Splendoria. Here. We have a quorum. Thank you, Madam Clerk. Our next agenda item is to go into public comment. A few comments about public comment. A reminder that this board of trustees welcomes public comment. All feedback and commentary should be considered a gift. Generally, uh, com general commentary for public speakers, number one, need to inform or anyone interested in giving public uh, a comment. You need to inform the clerk of the board that you would like to make public comment. Many of you have today. Public comment can be made for specific agenda items or for non-agendized items. Third, generally speaking, we need to keep a time limitation. We have a full, uh, we have a full vote this evening. We have uh, approaching 15 uh, 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 comments. So for that, we're going to adjust the time. The, the time limit on, on, on each one's presentation should be two minutes. The clerk of the board will give you an audible 30 seconds, uh, if, if, uh, just to let you know. She'll say 30 seconds out loud, and then she'll say time, and then, and, then, and then we ask you to be mindful of the time for us. I'm gonna name the speakers, and this is the order in which we will go. Uh, this is as submitted. We'll be hearing from Mana Leon, Mike Aranguren, Lisa Virginia, Said Dabir, Antonio LaGreca, Elvia Jimenez, Julie Corral, Benjamin Pineda, Nai Satern, Gerardo, uh, Gerardo Geronimo Lorenzo, Shalika Carter, Allison Austin, Felix Thompson, and Susan Sandoval. So that's our list, our speakers. We, we look forward to your commentary. We'll start off at the top of the list. So uh, if each of you will just be ready uh, next, uh, we'll start off with Mr. Mana Leon, and you have two minutes on the clock. Welcome, Mana. Sorry, was Mana here? We'll put Mana on hold. We'll, 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 we'll next go to Mike. Hi, Mike. Hi, everyone. Can you hear me? Yes. Welcome, Good. Mike. Thank uh, you and, so much, um, Dr. Bouquet. Uh, as always, Mike. Uh, 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 my pleasure. Two minutes, on, two minutes on the clock, sir. And you'll All get right. that I, I just want to start by letting you know that uh, the CEO of Alameda Health System, James Jackson, and our COO, Mark Frasky, are aware of our situation. Uh, good afternoon to everybody. My name is Mike Aaron Gurren. I have been employed with Alameda Health System for 21 years as a Spanish language medical interpreter. I appreciate this appointment, this opportunity to speak and be heard. I and those colleagues present would like to take a few moments to address what we believe are ongoing egregious working conditions. In all my years of service, I have never been witness to the level of intimidation that now exists in our department due to our new director. Uh, morale is at an all-time low. Our director, Helen Pagi Lagan, has micromanaged us to the extent that the stress inflicted on some of my coworkers and my manager is alarming and palpable. There have been run-ins between Ms. Pagi Lagan and my fellow colleagues that have left them shaking and in some instances 
crying. This is unacceptable, and I am personally offended by their mistreatment. You cannot berate people and then expect cooperation. Some of my colleagues present today can speak directly in regards to those incidents. This relationship with our director started two years ago, and it has deteriorated since the start. We feel that we have reached the point of no return. The train has left the station. We collectively she should be removed as soon as possible. Uh, things have become more difficult, and I believe in the it's um, directly wants to eliminate the department through privatization, and we have inadequate staffing, and she is not interested in the mission statement. All language groups are affected, especially those languages that have lower call volumes. In conclusion, we exist together as a supposedly cooperative organic group. We have all had the ability to reason and we should have the freedom to exercise this right and not That's be sat under her orders of authority. Thank you very much for your time. I appreciate it. Thank you for your comments, sir. Next will be Lisa Virginia. Hello, Lisa. Is Lisa here this evening? We'll hold, we'll put Lisa on to the back of the deck and we'll move, we'll move to Saeed Dabir. Good evening, Saeed. You're on mute, Saeed, sir. Thank you, sir. Thank you for this opportunity. Of and course. Two, thank two you minutes on the clock. I'll try my best and I, I, I have so many things to say, but I will say, I will make it uh, brief. So actually, I was in CEO meeting today, CEO chart today, used to call CEO, they call the leadership chart today. These days, they call the, the desk chart, and they said we need $50 million. Our interpreter department has a very good, I think, tips, so we can make it in 49, 49 million. So we can make it a little bit down if you give us a time. And if you listen to us, we have sent the letter. All these people, uh, all the interpreters have sent the letter. We have not received. We have not received the answer of our, of our honourable CEO or COO. And we want to have a meeting with him in person. Only interpreters, no bosses, only. And we'll talk to him, and they can at least save two hundred fifty thousand dollars. That's in my opinion, because we need to save the money. But actually, I want to say some. I want to say something else. Uh, about about this country, about the people, uh, how their people are. Many years ago, I ran into a very smart, uh, very smart person while I dining outside. I wrote a small note to that person and say that uh, I want to shake your hand sincerely. Two twenty four nineteen sixty. That's my date of birth. I wrote it down, and I thought he will never come to shake. I thought I was fool sending that note that when I was leaving, Mr. Steve Job came in person. Ask and saying me, are you Mr. 220, uh, 224, 1960? Yes, yes, I said yes. And he shook my hand, he asked me many questions. That means I asked him many questions. One of the questions was that how you can save that much money uh, uh, like you have done. So he told me, you know, I never thought about the saving. I always think about the creative, the creation, and I create the jobs, and I create a lot of jobs. I, I hire a lot of people, okay, and they make me rich. Okay, and, and really he did. If you see if the if you see in America, many people get a job because of him, and also other countries have a lot of job because of the Steve Jobs. So, and other thing is the new new uh, new owner of Washington Post. In this age, nobody want nobody want to do a newspaper. Nobody want to do a 
newspaper these days he he made his staff double what he was doing is double these people are creative they do that i see we are uh, we uh, their strategies to make bigger and more higher more people our strategies looks like our say we, like we are at time we are at time sir Yeah, I'll, okay. I'll, 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 I'll give you. I'll give you ten more seconds. I want. I want the BOT, honorable BOT, make uh, make our CEO and our COO give us a meeting and answer our letter, please. Okay. Thank you very much. We can. I think we can help them save uh, save our two hundred fifty thousand dollars. Thank you very much. Thank, thank you, you for that. Thank you, sir. Next uh, is Antonio Lagreca. Good evening, Antonio. Good evening, Dr. Bakay. Thank you for the sir. opportunity. To, uh, good evening to everybody in the Board of Trustees. Uh, in addition to what Mike already said, I would like to denounce before the Board of Trustees issues that are negatively impacting my department. In 2019, the previous AHS administration under, under Mr. Finley assigned to our department a Vice President, Silvia Lozano, and Ms. Lozano appointed Director Helen Pagilagan to run the interpreters department. Both appointments are a financial waste, in our opinion, of more than $500,000 a year. The interpreters department is a small unit of 24 employees, efficiently led for more than 15 years by Ms. Samboli, who has received national and local recognition for her leadership and compassion. Since Mr. Ms. Pagilagan took charge two years ago, we've been subject of extreme micromanagement as uh, Mike already uh, stated. The core function of our department is to assist doctors, nurses, and patients with medical interpretation and the best possible services for our, for our underprivileged multicultural community. Now we must attend daily meetings to listen to statistics unrelated to interpretation. Hundreds of lost, lost man hours due to lengthy, unproductive daily meetings and thousands of dollars paid to an outside interpretation vendor while we are attending the meetings. This director, does, this director does not have supervisory knowledge and people skills to run the, the interpreters department. None of us has ever experienced such low morale, have never felt such disrespect or stress at work. Today we are united in our demand for immediate change. We can be successful with Ms. Pagilagan as our leader someone who ignores Alameda Health System vision statement that promotes wellness, eliminates disparities, and strives to be a world-class system um, for the health of our diverse community. Thank you for the opportunity. Antonio, thank you very much. Elvia Jimenez. Hello, Elvia. Elvia, are you here this evening? We'll put Elvia on the back of the deck. Julie Corral. Hi, Julie. Hello, Dr. Bouquet, and hello, um, Board of Trustees. My name is Julie Corral. I am a Spanish interpreter, proudly serving Alameda Health System for over 10 years. Ever since the new director, Helen Pagilagan, was hired, she has produced anxiety, calculated intimidation, and a stressful work environment. Never has morale been so low in the interpreter department. Our interpreters love serving our communities, but now I hear from many of my colleagues say that they dread coming to work because of Helen. Our current manager, Sambo Lee, has been director of refugee services and interpreter services And she had been directing and managing 36 employees and according to the public website, Transparent California, earning $130,000 a year 
managing both departments. However, the previous COO, Luis Fonseca, hired Silvia Lozano. Silvia created the position of director of interpreter services and hired Helen. They removed Sambo from the refugee clinic, but kept her as manager of interpreter services. So whereas previously, Sambo was managing and directing two up departments and 36 employees at a yearly salary of $133,000, now AHS is paying Helen over $211,000 per year, according, again, to the public website, Transparent California, to direct only 25 employees. Between Helen and Sambo, that's more than $344,000 per year for such a small department. Again, when Sambo was managing interpreter services and directing the refugee clinic by herself for nearly half the salary. I would never say that Helen is void of compassion or humanity, but she does not display these characteristics towards my colleagues uh, in interpreter services. On the contrary, soon after arriving, she laid off four interpreters and one support staff who had been serving AHS from 35 to 15 years. She would have fired two more employees if Sambo had not refused to do so. She's aggressive. She has made two interpreters cry. She's demeaning to Sambo in front of the interpreters, and therefore we feel she is not an effective AHS leader, and she should definitely not be part of the interpreter services team. For listening. Thank you, Julie, for your comments. Benjamin Pineda. Good evening, Benjamin. You're on mute, sir. Benjamin, you're on. Yeah, there we go. Can you hear me now? We're, we're good now, Benjamin. Thank you for this opportunity. Hello, Border Seas, dear colleagues and public in general. My name is Benjamin Pineda, and I've been working here for the last 28 years as a Spanish medical interpreter. First of all, I concur with all of my dear colleagues have said of what has been happening currently in our situation at the interpreting department. Going to be brief and concise. Like in the last couple of years, you know, it reminds me of the past. I've seen some of the same signs happening in our interpreting department before which is happening today again. Some of the signs, you know, we're experiencing was being stressed out from our work, afraid to speak up, and publicly, publicly being humiliated and disrespected, with less, less to a low morale in our department. About 15 years ago, we were also poorly managed. We're living now in the same scenario. Even one of our colleagues, were taken to the point of desperation and committed suicide. We don't want any anybody happening to us, but, but this is a, this is our, you know, the public crying out loud for help. Please, border supervisor, we're begging you, do something about it. We're good people. We don't deserve to be treated like this, to be humiliated, respected, or mistreated. Thank you very much for this opportunity. Thank you, Benjamin. You're welcome. Next is Ms. Nese turn. Thank you so much, Border Trustee. Uh, thank you for the opportunity. My name is Nice Turns. I'm a Lao Mian interpreter and Thai. Um, on March uh, 16, uh, during the hour huddles, uh, get to the section that we have to provide the feedback or issue. 
And then um, this is the only time that we uh, give opportunity to put in our concern and what's happening to our patient. Patient is telling, calling me at home, uh, evening and the weekend, desperately ask for help uh, because outside vendors simply not competent. When I brought this up to Mrs. Um, Helen, uh, to attention, she immediately responded uh, with this respectful attitude. Do not send a message to uh, a message that you are the only interpreter who can assist them. Blame on the uh, render unnecessary. I was shocked. I was so humiliated, intimidated. All at the same time, in front of all my colleagues, I do not feel that safe to talk anymore. This is my, uh, in my 37 years, I have never felt so distressed and uh, upset about uh, the department's leader had treated me. One day I went home and I cried in front of my son. All I want to do is to help our patients. I am here to ask for help to solve our issue. Thank you so much for the opportunity. Thank you, Nancy. Gerardo Lorenzo. Good evening, Gerardo. Are you here this evening? Hi. Hi, all. Hello. Good evening. Uh, yeah. My name is Gerardo, an indigenous Maya interpreter from Guatemala. I am community liaison, organizer, and advocate, and the only nationally certified Mayan mom healthcare interpreter. And I have never seen my community, my colleagues, and myself be so humiliated, disrespected, and belittled ever in my life when I'm attempting to bring the adequate attention to issues that affect our daily operations at work and outside of work. After multiple emails and conversations with Helen, our director, None of her words and promises was ever followed through. This is just a slap in the face and turning a blind eye on issues that perhaps may be out of her scope of skill, knowledge, and practice that restrict her understanding of what we have to juggle as interpreters. We remove linguistic and cultural barriers while also recognizing that we are held strictly by national standards of practice, practice, codes of ethics, while finally keeping in mind what we say and interpret and anything we say can be held against us if we do false interpretations. There be there must be some type of understanding of the community in which we are living in. These are the communities that we come that come through our double doors. We should at least know who our patients are. However, all of this has been completely thrown out of the window. Instead, sensitive decisions have been based on metrics and data that clearly is not capturing what is required to make sound decisions. Sheer ignorance displayed through her authoritative decisions and actions. What kind of leader taunts her employees by punishing them rather than sitting down, listening and having conversation and empowering or even uplifting them by standing up for her employees? A leader should be better than this, a lot better than this. I'm tired, I'm helpless, distressed, and even to the point in which I gave up, but I came back stronger. I had to put a stop to this, to put a stop to this toxic environment this harassment and this blatant ignorance. Uh, Gerard, she said, Gerardo, you, you were the one that brought it up. Now you don't want to help out? For over two years, I have repeatedly raised concerns and appropriate behaviors and even medical, potentially malpractice that could have been rectified if taken care of immediately. But there are some um, that it was too late to prevent damages that could have been avoidable. And last, I just wanted to really see 
She was interviewing for the position of director for the entire interpreting department. How is someone who's with no interpreting training and experience allowed to become director when she clearly does not know anything about interpreting? Thank you. Thank you, Gerardo. Salika Carter, please. Salika, are you in the room? I thought I saw. Hello. Hi. Um, Good evening. Hello. Good evening. My name is Shalika Carter. I'm um, a chapter secretary, um, and I'm here in support of um, members who um, have decided to speak out against their system director, um, Heather Duke, in specific. So, and we're also the chapter is also in support of the interpreter services and the interpreters um, themselves. Um, as a point of uh, uh, sort of reference, we're, we're, we're trying to build relationships that are transparent, I hate using that word, communicative and um, build relationships um, that are um, healthy in nature uh, and aggressive and, um, um, and moving forward have positive uh, so, uh, back and forth fluid dialogue uh, with managers and our members. And the things that we've been hearing lately are concerning. Um, there are issues that um, our campus and system-wide um, with especially Heather Duke, there's a, a culture of retaliation, um, racial discrimination, retaliatory behaviors, um, employees being um, uh, being retaliated against and gone and sought after in in very hostile ways. Um, I have forwarded this, I forwarded this board letters um, from those members, and um, more statements are due to come. Over seventy five people um, have uh, have forwarded information in regards to this this toxic manager and so we intend to continue to pursue this and we're requesting a response from this board of trustees by next wednesday the 21st um Hi. with with information or return information about statistical data uh concerning uh the demographics of the employees that have been terminated managers as well um, that includes race and gender, and uh, we're also uh, requesting. Carter, we're at time. Uh, how about ten more seconds? Cool. Uh, so yeah, we're requesting that information, and um, just we'll have a continuous. Um, um, we'll be uh, forwarding continuous information to this board, and um, trying to to get to the bottom of what the issues are. Thank you. Thank you for your comments. Next is Miss Allison Austin. Ms. Austin, there she, there you are. Good evening. Hello. Hi. Hello. Hi. My name is Austin. I'm a registered nurse, and I hold the position in the SEIU 10 to 1 as a chapter leader. I'm the vice president of the RN chapter. Tonight, I'm bringing my concerns to you from numerous members of SEIU who are presently employed throughout AHS. I've been an employee myself for 20 years which is truly an institution of caring, sharing, teaching, and serving all. But tonight, I want to discuss what is now broken within the system. Two department leaders that have been mentioned, Helen 
Pai Gan, and Director of Medical Interpretive Services, and Heather Duke, Director of Radiology. Her, our members' voices state that both are either bullies, micromanagers, uh, they're not allowing staff who have present in the past been self-directed in their environment, and both of them, both managers are in director leadership positions that do not possess the background of the clinical the clinical background of the area that they um, direct. In both past and present, as a result of their behaviors, many members have prematurely resigned due to stress-related issues or unfairly discharged from their positions. I personally have spent countless hours communicating with affected members who have worked under both directors and their, li and their lives at AHS have changed forever. The spirit of working at AHS as a valued employee is all but gone for many members. In brief, many have shared by email to you. I, we have shared um, in brief to you uh, lives of many of the dedicated members and their experiences that want to see the end of this injustice, racial inequality, dehumanization that they have suffered throughout their employment at AHS. In conclusion, we have we would like a response and a remedy from the Board of Trustees by next week, April 21st at the end of business day. Thank you. Thank you for your comments. Um, Felix Thompson. Hi, I'm Felix. I'm a chief steward in a, um, SCIU 10 to 1. I'm also a nurse here at Highland. And I'm here to support my sisters and brothers and siblings who work here and, and keep our hospital running and care for our patients um, in both the interpreter department and the radiology department. Um, you know, we have had a big change at AHS. It's an opportunity to change the culture. And I hope that the new leaders in this room, uh, Mr. Jackson and our new board of trustees, I hope that you can um, help us build a new relationship of trust by showing that you're not going to tolerate this kind of uh, behavior on the part of directors that was tolerated under the previous leadership. Um, this, it, I'm just going to be straight up. Heather Duke, she has fired over 20 workers. <laughs> she is universally considered um, a, a very abusive boss, and there is definitely a racial disparity in who she acts against. It's very concerning, and I'm very concerned that new leadership hasn't addressed this. To the interpreter issue, uh, I think you can see by the number of interpreters in this room and how hard it is for workers to speak up that this is a universal issue in this department. This, <laughs> these interpreters who serve our community, they're, they're the backbone of serving our community. None of us, me as a nurse, I cannot care for our patients without the interpreters, right? And they, they serve this other role besides just interpreting that may be invisible, where they're navigators of the system to new immigrants, right? They're, they're trusted. Uh, they, they are like the, the, the trust leaders for AHS to these immigrant communities. They represent AHS. And so we need to show, the res show respect for how much they're putting out here today and telling you that this leadership is is not right for their department. And I hope that we can build a new relationship of trust and we can hear a response from you within a week. I've already asked we've already asked for a meeting with Mr. Jackson. So I hope we can see that meeting as soon as possible. Thank you for your comments, Felix. 
Susan Sandoval. Susan, are you in the room? Yes. Hello, Board Hi, of Susan. Hello, Board of Trustees, public and attendees. I would like to point out that I fully support the interpreters. We greatly appreciate their hard work. I use them quite often. We also have bad management, like Heather Duke, that tend to infect their departments with bad attitudes. It's like a disease. They spread despair, anger, and depression, which shows up in lack, lust, work, absentees, and turnovers. Managers like Heather Duke and the cultures that enable them, AHS, turnover is the highest it's ever been. Employees do not feel appreciated at AHS under her management. Exit interviews are helpful, but they're too late. We shouldn't stop using them, but we need to do other things. Please hear us out. Last, we also hope that a mean boss like Heather Duke would change her ways and that the organization will take some action and things will improve. Hopefully before more dedicated employees leave, please hear us out, lift our morales as we serve the public and we fully support our other employees through our system. Thank you. Thank you, Susan. Wrapping back around, Mana Leon, Mana, Mana, have you attended? Going once, going twice. All right. Lisa Virginia. Hi, Lisa. Are you in the room this evening? This is Marta Ni. Marta. Hi, Marta. Uh, hi, Doctor. Uh, um, I'm here for 20 years today in this department. I used to have my medal. Um, I was very happy to do this job. But now my morale is very low. Uh, I see mistreatment to my coworkers. I see that nobody wants to even join the meeting because there are too many meetings where we can help ourselves doing only one meet, meeting at, the, at, the, uh, at least a month. But now she wants two meetings times a, a week, and that's too much mistreatment. The, I don't feel good in this department with this manager, and I'm asking for help. Thank you, Marta. Lisa, did you come into the room? Okay. Elvia, were you able to attend? That will close our public comment. And, 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 and... Yes, I'm here. Oh, sorry. Uh, yes. Good evening, everyone. Um, Elvia, Spanish interpreter. I've been Hi, for eight. I've been working for AHS for thirty years now, and to be honest, I have a lot to say. And at the same time, the words just don't won't come out of my mouth. I'm just flabbergasted. I don't want to keep repeating everything my coworkers have said. But yes, the morale is down, especially when I when I hear her directing some of her anger towards some of my coworkers, that places a lot of mistrust in her leadership. I really feel uncomfortable. The best time of the day for me is at 4.30 when I can get out. And that's, that's sad to say because I enjoy doing the work I do. We need changes and we need help. Thank you. Thank you, Alvia. That closes the list of, uh, of public comments and, and um, know that the Board of Trustees, I'll reiterate what I said, welcomes public comment. All feedback and commentary should be considered a gift. So thank you for all of that. With that, we'll move into the open session and we'll go to item A, which is the Executive Officer's Report. 
As everyone recalls who comes to this meeting, we open with an article. The article was called Successful Strategic Planning, the Board's Role. Now, this was a heavy read. This is around 18 or 20 pages. But I, I would say to my to my fellow um, colleagues on the on the board, as well as the executive leadership team, uh, this is one to add to the core library, if you will consider. I'll just I'll just take on a few statements uh, from uh, uh, extracted from the article, and then we'll move on. One, articulating the strategic direction for the organization is one of the basic duties of a healthcare board. That's one of the reasons that we are here. Two of the key responsibilities of boards are to establish and support the organizational purpose and to provide points of view on what the organization should ultimately achieve in pursuit of that purpose. Next, strategic planning is an essential component of constructing the roadmap to the mission and vision of the organization. And to remind the trustees, myself and the audience, our mission statement is caring, healing, teaching, serving all. Our vision statement is that AHS will be recognized as a world-class patient and family-centered system of care that promotes wellness, eliminates disparities, and optimizes the health of our diverse communities. Last, strategic planning is a discipline. It's a discipline that enables the board and the management to evaluate the present environment, the organization's position within that environment, and then to craft a plan to successfully fulfill the mission of the organization. So when data flows to the board and to the management, uh, we should we should embrace that data because it is opportunity to make our to remake ourselves better. The monograph then goes on to advise how how we do this, and it ends with ten questions, which I'm not going to read here. But I, I'd say this this is a great guidance document to any healthcare board, uh, or, or 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 for the matter that matter, any kind of board who. Who, who is charged with overseeing a, an, an enterprise. With that, I'll close my section. I'll defer now to Vice President Jensen if she has any comments, and then Secretary Treasurer Esteen, and then we'll close out this item. Vice President Jensen. Now, I, I'll reserve my comments for the um, agenda items. Thank you. Thank you, Vice President Jensen. Secretary Treasurer Esteen, the floor is yours. I'll just say that I appreciate the thoughtfulness you put into choosing articles and uh, the way that each article helps to frame the work that we continue to do as a board. Um, yeah. Thank you, Trustee Esteen. Um, with that, let's let's close item A and then now defer to our interim CEO. Let's go to item B, that our, our interim CEO report. Mr. Jackson, good evening. Good evening. Thank you very much. Um, greetings, trustees, staff, and members of the public. It's my pleasure to address you this evening. I'd like to take this opportunity to address topics based on the pillars of the organization in my allotted time, and I welcome you to ask questions. If they'll keep until the end of the presentation, that's great, but if they're pressing, please feel free to stop and ask. Now on to our pillars. The first being access, and that pillar is represented by those we serve get the right care at the right place and at the right time. And I'm gonna focus this evening on COVID our testing and our vaccination process. So in regards to testing, thus far, Alameda Health System has tested 21,572 patients and we've recorded 2,568 positives. Um, positive active patient, or excuse me, acute care patients right now, today across the system, there are six COVID positive patients in the acute care services across 
our system. There are zero positive patients in the post-acute services at this time. In regards to our staff, the total number of staff who have tested positive as of April 8th from the beginning is 346. And just for reference, that's about 5.3% of our workforce. Moving to vaccinations, um, expanded patient vaccination eligibility. Effective this Thursday, April 15th, our ambulatory care services will expand eligibility criteria for COVID-19 patient vaccinations. The following will be eligible to receive COVID-19 vaccination at our ambulatory clinics. Patients who currently get care at an AHS clinic, and that includes primary care, specialty care, dental, or behavioral health, and who are 16 years of age or older. There's additional information about COVID vaccinations that can be found on AHS's intranet, a COVID-19 vaccine information hub in a document that's titled AHS COVID Vaccine Eligibility. So if you want to learn more, please feel free to go to that document. Patient vaccination clinics are offered at all four of our wellness centers by appointment only. Patients who meet the criteria can schedule an appointment by calling the Ambulatory Care Call Center. That number for quick reference, 510-437-8500. Community members who want the COVID-19 vaccine and do not currently receive care at an AHS clinic can check the Alameda County Department of Public Health website to find out if they meet criteria and where they can access the vaccine. In regards to our staff, we have a drop-in pilot clinic, which we're launching this week to help reduce the barriers uh, related to scheduling. Staff can receive their COVID-19 vaccine without an appointment at Highland Hospital. I'm going to move now to our network pillar. And our network pillar, the, the, the statement is, our intent is to collaborate with other healthcare providers and other organizations to support the total health of the families and communities we serve, leverage what we do best with what others do equally well. And I'm going to focus this evening on our recent uh, collaboration with the Healthcare Services Agency and the BB Memorial Cathedral. On the 3rd and 4th of April, AHS partners with the Governor's Office and the BB Memorial Co- uh, Cathedral to host a walk up vaccination event at the church. There were more than 30 AHS department leaders who were involved in the planning and delivery of this event, and 40-plus AHS staff and members of the congregation. In all, there were 1,153 vaccinations administered, and representatives from the governor's office were present, as well as members from the Alameda County Board of Supervisors. There are a few uh, fun facts that I'd like to share. The oldest person vaccinated was 100 years old. The average distance traveled um, for people who received vaccinations was about four and a half miles. On Friday, the average distance traveled was two and a half miles, and on Saturday, it was 6.2. And so we felt like that was significant because it seems that the word got out, and so the radius of people who were receiving the vaccinations expanded um, from Friday to Saturday. I'll turn now to um, patient experience, Um, the patient experience pillar is the sum of all interactions shaped by an organization's culture that influence patients' perception across the continuum of care. I'm going to focus this evening on the celebration this week of the Black Maternal Health Week and especially recognizing our beloved birth Black Centering Program for its work in improving the experience and health of Black mothers and their babies. Last evening, I had the opportunity to attend a watch party with the first cohort of moms and babies that have gone through the program. And I'm just going to take a moment and share some of the comments that I heard last evening. We are protected. 
my child is going to be president someday. This program has given me everything. You, and she was referring to the beloved birth black centering staff, were like genies. If I had a need, you were there. The next one said, I felt you were holding my hand every step of the way. This program was a light in a very dark time, and she was referring to the world events that were happening during her pregnancy. The final comment I want to share is um, a woman shared that being able to be seen and protected means so much. We are hella valuable. That's a quote, and I just, I love that, and that was my favorite comment of the evening. I'm going to turn now to our quality pillar, and um, trustees, you will note that in my correspondence to you yesterday, um, the anticipated Joint Commission survey began yesterday, and you did receive, I believe, my day one summary last evening, and so I'm going to briefly share a summary of day two right now. Um, the lead surveyor conducted 20 additional chart audits from Periop, ICU, the Emergency Department of Med Surge, and it was another day of zero findings. She continued to compliment the skill and commitment of our staff, and in fact attended a segment of our leadership chat today that was referenced earlier to learn about our efforts around the beloved birthing and Black Maternal Health Week services in our community. Our lead surveyor's focus tomorrow will be reviewing treatment plans at John George Psychiatric Hospital in a consultative fashion. She intends to exit early tomorrow afternoon and furthermore, she commented that at this point in her survey, she can express to the Joint Commission her confidence in the leadership and governance commitment to sustaining the progress that she's seen thus far. Tomorrow, the second engineering surveyor will arrive and begin touring the facilities, and he will be on board through Friday. Our clinical teams and quality department will be rounding ahead of the surveyor starting early tomorrow morning to prepare for another successful day. I must share that I am extremely proud of how the entire AHS organization has responded to this challenge, and I'm optimistic of the final outcome. Special kudos to Dr. Tanvir Hussein and his regulatory team. They have been phenomenal in their efforts to ready the organization for this review. The final pillar that I'll speak to this evening is workforce, and the workforce pillar states make AHS the best place to learn and to work. And um, I will note that I intend to end all of my presentations to this board with brief examples of AHS staff who are caught in the act, if you will, of delivering great care service to those that entrust their care to us. Today, I'm going to profile Amal Amini, who is the AHS Director of Security and Transportation. Yesterday, I had the opportunity to watch Amal take a potentially fraught situation and turn it into a positive interaction, and I just want to share that with the trustees briefly. There was an individual at the hospital front with a radio playing loudly and having uninvited interactions with individuals waiting to receive COVID tests. This was reported to Mr. Amini, and he is our director of security and transportation. And his response was to go to the scene with a member of his security staff. He interacted directly with the individual who had an initial negative response to the uniform guard and declined to turn his music down. Amal engaged this gentleman further and discovered that the individual was here for a COVID test, but could not be tested until later in the day. Amal shared this information with the individual, and the gentleman agreed to lower his music and depart with plans to return when the test was available. By taking the time to listen and to seek to understand, Amal was able to de-escalate a potentially volatile situation and to help someone receive the care that, in fact, they actually needed. I'd like to celebrate Amal for his cool head as well as for his compassion. Trustees, this is my report. 
I welcome your comments and questions. Thank you, Mr. Jackson. Trustees, any any questions of our of our CEO? Just a quick uh, comment. I just want to congratulate the whole management team for uh, terrific results in the first two days of the survey. It's very impressive and encouraging. Thank you. Thank you, Trustee Trustee Fox. Any other trustee comments? Thank you, Mr. Jackson. With that, we'll close item B. Uh, I need to step back a little bit. There was one uh, listed uh, public comment that I overlooked. My bad. Apologies. Miss Andriana Oray will be our last uh, public speaker. Miss Andriana? Yes, hi. Um, I just wanted to touch up on that Heather Duke situation. Um, I'm an ultrasound sonographer and I've been with Highland Hospitals since 2018 under Heather Duke's um, direction. Um, six months after I started, I've had to witness racial bullying by being called that I am not Asian enough or to remain quiet when I make suggestions. I've been retaliated against uh, due to me not allowing students to scan. And then as a result to all of this that's happened to me, I was terminated as of January of this year. Now, I know the Board of Trustees are brand new, and the last Board of Trustees, they are well aware of Heather Duke's uh, behavior. I've reported several of these issues to the hotline. However, the hotline gives the information to Heather Duke, which allows her to retaliate against me. The Labor Relations Board, Paul Liam, Desiree Mosley, did nothing. Nobody does anything. The HR people did nothing. Well, the director, he's already resigned, um, along with the rest of the leadership have resigned. And I just wanted to say that Heather Duke should be removed from the site because she does not care about patient care and she bullies all the employees. And this should be looked to with heavy scrutiny. And thank you for taking the time to listen to what I had to say. Thank you for your comments, Andriana. Um, so with that, we'll jump back into the agenda. Um, Madam Clerk, were you able to get, uh, get Ms. Andriana's name down? I did, thank you. Okay. Thank you. Um, we'll, we'll now go into item C, which is the medical staff reports. Um, let's uh, switch it up and come out of the gates with Dr. Kathy Pyun, the chief of the medical staff for Alameda Hospital. Dr. Pyun, are you in the room this evening? Yes, hi. Good evening, Dr. Ken. The floor is yours. Sure. Well, uh, basically, to give you a report, um, HCAP scores for the physicians at Alameda has gone up to 90% for um, courtesy and respect. Uh, doctors treating patients with courtesy and respect. So that we're excited about hearing about some positive um, reviews about our physicians. Um, since COVID hit, uh, since a lot of, uh, at least as of recently, they were allowing for uh, some visits uh, by family, but almost before that, no family was allowed into the hospital. So we've been calling every patient's family every day. And I think that's been helping and keeping uh, our communication open with the patients and their families and giving them updates on a daily basis. Uh, in addition, uh, of note, telemedicine has, you know, is here at Alameda Hospital and providing uh, more access to a subspecialty care, including cardiology on the weekends and on teleneurology um, 24 seven. 
So uh, at the you know there's been some hiccups, but I think that a lot of the kinks have worked out, and we're getting some good um, notes and I think good consults. And so far, um, it's getting it's looking things are looking up in that department. Um, uh, as far as another issue I wanted to talk about was transfers um, in between facilities. Um, I've had some good experiences. Um, some you know there's been some sticky situations where there's been no beds at Highland uh, for an intensive care unit patient that needs um, an EEG. That's that's been sticky. But um, as far as some other uh, situations have been worked out very well positively. I sent a patient to Summit you know, Summit for something. That was not an easy transfer. They were very reluctant to take the patient, but um, our transfer center did work very hard to push that, help me push that one through. So I, there's, you know, it's mixed. Um, as far as a survey, we're talking also about JCO. I mean, uh, survey readiness, and uh, that's uh, a lot of. I know that a lot of the leadership is preparing for that, and um, I'm still. You know, I'm waiting at this point to, you know, any direction I can get from. Uh, the leaders above me to, to anyway I can I could prepare my staff uh, for uh, an, uh, a survey would be welcome so I'm, I'm looking forward to that um, so basically that's mostly what I wanted to discuss as far as my my issues any questions trustees any comments or questions for Dr. Pune you know Dr. Pune I always ask the same question to and 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 this will go to the other med staff leaders as well to to provide a kind of uh, your hit list, your 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 rank list of key concerns, I, I ask all of you just to, to move beyond just listing something, and and give your analysis uh, about why it's on your list and what are you doing about it? Is it improving or not? So so I ask that uh, that in subsequent um, reports you you put that in your written report. Why is it on your list, and why is it not moving on your list, and what is your analysis of that? But. For them, for now, we can do it verbally. You you rank listed your key concerns as one access to subspecialists. Can you comment on that? I think that um, the telemedicine, in some ways, has uh, helped uh, access, for, especially for cardiology. Uh, it's, I think it's working well, much better than before. Prior to that, we would just call the cardiologist and, and talk to them over the phone, and you know they give us advice over the phone. Now we're getting notes, we're getting a true consult. They're doing a video consult. We're we're happy about that. Um, you know, uh, would I prefer an in-house neurologist 24-7? Sure, I would, but someone got burnt out doing that job. So I understand the need for teleneurology. And so far, I, I can't really complain. I can't say that, you know, they're doing a bad job. I, I'm, I'm reading notes, and they feel like, I feel like they're doing a pretty comprehensive exam. And, um, you know, so, you know, again, uh, there's lots of positives and there's negatives, but I think overall uh, things are moving in a good direction with th those things. Um, you know. Uh, so, so what I'm hearing is the access to subspecialists is an improving it issue is, at Alameda Hospital. It is improving. Lots of those two and those two departments improving. There's always more things to to, to look at. I can look at I can look at a lot of other other areas that we could still improve on. So I'm I'm, I'm going to chip away at every every department I see. So I guess my question is, if it's improving, is it still your number one concern? Because it's listed as your number one concern in your report. Yes, it's still a concern. It's still uh, your num It is your number one concern. Um, you know, it's maybe not my number one, but it's it's in there. It's hard for me to say what's number one. They're all important. So you know, in as a small hospital, you know, we're we're a little bit on an island, and we don't have um, all the subspecialists we we can use. 
And um, so, you know, uh, so, yeah. You, you listed support and foster just culture as your number two. Yeah. Why, was that your, why was that your number two? I think that um, we, we're in a situation where I think uh, you're seeing, you don't want to see that toxic culture. You don't want to see um, situations where people are being belittled or uh, when people are pointing out something that um, perhaps could have been undone better or if they made a mistake and they could have done things better. I don't want to see a toxic culture where people just point fingers and, and um, belittle people. That We want to see a situation, uh, a place where uh, where physicians can be educated and taught and, and nurtured. And, uh, you know, any... I want to see, I want to see leadership um, foster that on any level. So anytime I don't, I don't, you know, I want, I want to keep pushing that through. I think that's really important. We're always going to, you're never going to see perfection. So you can always see things improve. So I, I'd like to see that to. Con, I, I want to see people um, being taught and uh, educated and um, and uh, not belittled. It, it, and, and in which vector is that going? Has that been improving or not improving? And what what made it be your number two on your list? Have there been issues recently, which 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 mandated which which uh, predisposed you to put it as the number two issue of concern? Yeah, I think that the, I think the way that peer review sometimes is done, I'm not sure if it's always done in a way that's um, in a way to educate. It's, it can it feels it can be a little punitive. I think that. The way we should do things, or a little, uh, should be more in the should be done in a way that uh, we can continue to help physicians improve. And it's more of an education. I think that we can we can do better. I, I think it's it's a work in progress. I think it's, it's something that we can uh, work towards and getting better. And I want I just want to just by saying it and putting it out there. I think and and talk to my uh, all the physicians as many as I, as I can about it. And letting people know, like, hey, there's going to come a time when you're, you know, someone's going to point out something you didn't do it very well. How are you going to respond, and how are you going to learn from from it? I think that's really, really important. And um, it's 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 almost impossible to escape that. No one's perfect, so um, I think people have to mentally prepare for that. You you put survey readiness uh, facilities and equipment number three, and then transfer process number four. Uh, what, what what is your feeling on the vector of survey readiness and and your transfer process? Is uh, we'll do transfer process last. Do you feel that that's improving or not improving? I think that okay. If it's, well, transfer process maybe sh- maybe should go higher. I think that it's. I think that there's been so many good things about the transfer center. They've helped us in many ways. They've pushed helped me push patients over to where they need to be appropriately. But we're still still stuck a little bit. I think that there's times where we really need to get a patient over to Highland and they don't they're they're usually impacted. They they have a limited number of, of uh, critical care beds, so it's tough. I think that we still need to work on that. I think that there might uh, we were we were discussing a little bit about possible bed swaps switching patients out, maybe us taking a patient of theirs, they can take one of ours if, if they have something, a uh, situation where they, you know, they have some, uh, some, some some sort of specialty, a specialist or some sort of uh, equipment that they have that we don't have. And that has not been completely worked out. So it's, again, a work in progress. We've been discussing this. I've been talking to Dr. Isolani, who uh, is our representative of the Transfer Center for Alameda. And there's, you know, again, I think, you know, it hasn't been tested that much. We haven't had a 
a, pay, a situation where someone's not, like gotten very, very sick and emergently had to go over right away. But we do have situations where it seems stuck. It takes several days to get over there. And it's not maybe not an absolute emergency, but it's, it's definitely holding up the ability for patients to get everything they need okay. because of, uh, you know, lack of, uh, of beds. Thank you, Dr. Pyun. Trustees, any other questions for Dr. Pyun, our Chief of Staff at Alameda Hospital? Thank you, Dr. Pyun. Uh, Dr. Afzali, uh, as a re reference, Dr. Afzali is an emergency department physician and he uh, leads the San Leandro Hospital Leadership Committee. Welcome, Dr. Afzali. Thank you, Dr. Bouquet. Uh, thank you, trustees, uh, for having me uh, present uh, conditions at San Leandro today. Uh, I have a unique report in that I have uh, all positive items to report uh, and uh, good movement on all fronts, uh, including uh, my uh, list of concerns that uh, are pretty much repetitive from month to month. Uh, but to begin, I wanted to thank Trustee Steen for her visit to San Leandro uh, earlier this month. Uh, thank you for taking interest in our humble hospital and coming to visit and get, trying to get to know us. Um, we all truly appreciate that and look forward to further visits. Um, the Joint Commission is here, uh, going great, uh, acknowledging uh, quality team and uh, the leadership at San Leandro for uh, for uh, coming through and, and, and making this a, quite a contrast to last year's visit. Um, Dr. Williams will be attending our um, leadership committee meetings uh, going forward. Uh, so looking forward to that. Uh, Dr. Pune mentioned uh, consults, specialty care, and transfers in between the sites. Uh, this also came up at the, at the leadership committee meeting uh, and an item that uh, I will be tackling over the coming weeks. Uh, and the reason why it came up for us was because San Leandro's volume has been uh, relatively low. Uh, and so we need, we need patients. Uh, and uh, Highland tends to be impacted, and, and there, there does seem to be a bit of a disconnect between patients waiting in the emergency department at Highland needing beds and beds being open at San Leandro needing patients. Uh, and so there, there is a way uh, to, to sort of fix that, and we just need to work, work through it and, and, and figure it out. Uh, I think one of the options is, is using technology, uh, using EPIC to identify potential transfers early, uh, and uh, creating a list that can be accessed by inpatient physicians at San Leandro and in Alameda to allow for uh, movement of patients out of Highland to, and then opening up beds for transfers there uh, in response. Uh, so I think the, the flow can be uh, improved upon with the use of technology. Uh, consultants, uh, subspecialty surgeons uh, are, are stretched thin with, with volume and also having to cover uh, the community sites now. Uh, we are in discussion in uh, trying to find a, uh, a middle ground to where we can serve our patients best and still um, get them to the right place where they need it without uh, overstretching our, our current uh, provider pool. Uh, that, those discussions are just starting. I want to acknowledge our uh, EBMG's president for uh, taking a lead interest in that. I think it's it's a very important topic that uh, sort of touches on many of the issues regarding transfer between sites. Um, the uh, last item uh, I wanted to mention is we have our nurse educator now uh, just started. 
uh, it's going to be uh, great. We haven't had an active nurse educator at San Leandro for almost two years. Um, and uh, we tried to do a sim session last night at San Leandro ED, but it was uh, uh, it was just probably one of the busiest days of the week. So uh, unfortunately, we had to cancel. But uh, you know, she's already started, hit the ground running, and uh, looking forward to very good things from her. Um, lastly, as uh, last month I had mentioned, the uh, monitors, telemonitors in the ED needing replacement. Uh, again, uh, positive movement on that front. Uh, as I understand, the contract has already been signed, and so uh, it's just a matter of them um, arriving at some point. Um, so that concludes my report, and I welcome any questions. Thank you. Thank you. Trustees, any questions for our Dr. Afzali? So Dr. Afzal, sorry, Trustee Esteen, go for it. Thank you. I, I do want to say thank you for uh, allowing me to visit and for graciously showing me around San Leandro Hospital. I've lived in uh, this neighborhood for almost six years, and it was my first time going into the facility. Um, and I must say that I was very impressed with the subacute wing, which has been remodeled recently. Um, and I'll talk about capital expenditures in my um, finance committee chair report. Uh, but when I went into the ER, uh, I recognized that investments need to be made in order to help make this facility more like state of the art and less like uh, 20th century. Thank you, Trustee Yassine. Thank you. Um, trustees, any other comments? So, Dr. Afzali, what I think I heard from you is one of the things that you listed on your list of complaints, sorry, complaints is the wrong word, concerns, uh, monitors, is being addressed by management? Yes. I'm just saying. <laughs> okay. So, uh, I, I tell these trust, uh, these new chief of staffs, you utilize the pulpit that you have right here. Give us a thoughtful list of key concerns because you are the stewards of quality care for our system. So with that, Dr. Zali, do you have a rank list uh, 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 set of key concerns for you at this point? Well, the, the consults and transfers, I think, is a, is a big issue that affects patient care uh, uh, deeply and, and probably one of the most important issues that I think we need to uh, sort of hammer out over the next um, couple of months, uh, both the transfers between sites as well as uh, our ability to get uh, consults for transfers to Highland. Um, it's, a, it's a complex issue with multiple uh, factors and, and, and interplay, including uh, you know, patient uh, uh, preference uh, as well as bed availability. Um, so it's pretty, it's pretty complicated. There's not going to be an easy fix, uh, but uh, I think there, there could be a better fix than, than the option we have now, which is just taking it case by case. Okay. Uh, hopefully, I, that, I ask I ask everyone to mute if they're not speaking. So, Sorry, so that, that's uh, crept up to the, the the top of the list uh, uh, for me. Um, other than that, I think we're 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 making headway on everything. I, I truly appreciate uh, all the support and assistance and and the response that uh, I've received uh, both from uh, Mr. Jackson as well as from the board and yourself. Uh, uh, trustee esteem support is uh, much appreciated um, in 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 actually making making progress. I mean, I'm, I'm a witness. Uh, you know, before I started uh, attending these meetings, 
you know, there, there was this uh, misconception that things just don't happen. And, and this, this is an uh, obvious uh, example of that not being true and, 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 you know, making amazing headway in a very short time. Dr. Vzali, thank you for your comments. Thank you. Um, coming at the close, uh, we have Dr. Irina Williams. Good morning. Good evening, Dr. Williams. She's our chief of staff for Alameda Health System. Good evening. Good evening. Um, let me jump to my report. Um, so the um, credentials and privileges um, were discussed in details during the um, last QPSC. Uh, on your consent agenda, you're going to see some of the um, medical staff departmental specialty privilege forms um, today. Um, we have also received our first report from the Ecological Footprint Committee. Um, um, this committee updated us on various initiatives throughout the facilities on various environmentally friendly practices in the areas of medical device recycling, waste disposal, sustainable foods, and some more. So that was a very exciting report for us. Um, we also currently have three different uh, department chair searches going on within AHS. So this is for the, for the Department of um, Internal Medicine, Orthopedic Surgery, and Psychiatry. Um, and uh, also AHS medical staff have been has been working closely with the BMG to figure out sort of the nuances of our relationship, to figure out some processes between two entities. And uh, we've been making headway on that. So that's another exciting update from us. Um, in terms of our key concerns, um, uh, I listed trust, communication, and specialty coverage. Trust and communication probably going to be on my list for, for a little while because these are especially the number one concern trust is going to take some time to fix and rebuild. Uh, so you're probably going to see these two items there for, for a few meetings at mm -hmm. least. Um, in terms of communication, I have to say that the vertical communication has been improving and the staff has given feedback that they do feel that the communication throughout the health system has gotten much better compared to the past. So that's um, uh, reassuring. And in terms of specialty coverage, I think Dr. Fazali and Dr. Pion has sort of touch base on that uh, in terms of specialty coverage for um, San Leander Hospital, because that's within my <laughs> scope. Um, uh, I was um, provided an update that uh, there will be a work group formed throughout the health system to work on the specialty coverage issues to support our providers in San Leander Hospital and Alameda Hospital, I'm assuming as well. So there will be more to come on that, but um, this specialty coverage issue is still remains um, sort of uh, on this list because of that. And that concludes my report. Trustees, any questions of Dr. Williams? So Dr. Williams, my questions are, uh, you know, thank you for giving your key concerns and, and to all the uh, chiefs of staff, I ask that we be uh, at, at, at further written submit submission, we give a little bit, a little bit more expansive. It's okay, I didn't advise that before. But my question with regard to the domains of trust and communication, what are what is your interpretation? What are the parameters which will help us determine that things are actually getting better? Dr. Zali this actually gave us a, a great case study on objective parameters. And this this is this is a challenge with sort of softer domains of trust and communication. But what would you choose as parameters to determine, yes, we're getting better on the domain of trust, yes, we're getting better on the domain of communication? Can you can you tell me what your thoughts on that? 
Yeah, I guess I will have to think through specific parameters a little bit more. Um, right now, I'm basing my assessment based mainly on the feedback from the members of medical staff and sort of some initiatives that I see throughout the system in terms of improving transparency, trust, and communication. Um, but uh, I can certainly think through something a little bit more specific and potentially measurable. Yeah, measure and and you know. The human mind loves to have a negativity bias, all of us, right? So uh, it sometimes clouds our, our, our retrospective view on things. So uh, being, being more methodical as a board is what we hope, you know, and that's why we ask you to put forth your concerns and then, and then let's, let's actually measure it. You know, uh, in, in one case, Dr. Vzali, there wasn't a, the, the equipment and now the equipment is moving towards that. So that's an easier one. Trust and communication is a tougher domain, but I, I would argue an essential domain for what we do here. So I, I ask you to consider how we can measure these things. And then what is your opinion on, on if you will, the host factors that put us in a position which is less ideal? Why, why are we in the position where you have to put trust and communication at the top of the list? Um, so I, I guess um, some of the historical events may have affected um, perception of trust and perception of communication. Um, however, in terms of uh, this um, items being measurable, I just thought of using the results of the score survey to see um, if we have improved in and comparing them to the results of the pre from the previous years. So that can be one of the measurable uh, ways to evaluate how we do it as a health system um, in terms of trust and communication. So hopefully we'll we'll see those results soon, and that will be one of the ways to start um, measuring this aspect. Great, thank you, Dr. Williams. Trustees, okay. Uh, uh, tr uh, Mr. Mr. CEO, please. Thank you. Excuse me for interrupting, and I just I wanted to acknowledge what Dr. Williams has just shared. Uh, the only caveat that I would make is that um, I received a lot of queries during the culture of safety survey because um, the staff were concerned that if they answered the questions pertaining to this administration, then, you know, for the past year, their comments, you know, there might be the sense that they were speaking about the entire year versus the, the current period. My response when I was asked that question was they should answer in regards to the totality of the past year. Um, because that's only fair. They are covering the, the last period. And so what's happened in the past couple of months um, will be rolled into that, that year. And I, I understand that, but I also feel like it gives us a path to really having a clean next survey. So the next time we do a survey like the score survey, we really would have a, a, a line of delineation, if you will. So um, I just wanted to add that color commentary to the score results that we will be receiving um, early next month. I, I think that's a great commentary, uh, uh, sir. Um, and for us all to remember that the challenge of these, these annuals is, uh, you know, there's, there's recall bias and all that kind of thing. So I think this is a unique opportunity on this particular issue vis-a-vis -vis the medical staff that, to, to think about more dynamic measures, uh, something that could be, you know, just a, a, a quick uh, pulse check on, on, on some other quicker time frame, And maybe this is an opportunity to work with our uh, new CHRO, Ms. Jones, to consider how we can check the pulse of the organization on, on, on a basis more than annually. 
because yes. things things change. So, um, trustees, any other questions of Dr. Williams? I had a clarif- uh, fine question. Trustee Banerjee. Thank you. Does the culture of safety survey go to uh, just the clinical staff or does it go to uh, non-clinical as well? Everybody, non-clinical and clinical. Everybody, right? All right. And what is our goal for this year? How much of respondent rate are we looking for? I know that in the past it's been a little below what we've we've wanted. So um, do we? does anybody know? Our target was 80% response rate. We actually achieved about a 70% response rate. Okay, thank you. And 70% was comparable to the the last time it was done. So we we were relatively flat overall in terms of the, the quantity of their response. Thank you. Thank you to all. With that, we will thank you uh, to the Chiefs of Staff. Uh, we'll close out item C. Let's go to item D. That was a bit longer than 15 minutes. My apologies, I own that. Committee reports. D1 uh, is the QPSC. I chair the QPSC, I'll be very brief. Just a few comments to to all the trustees and the audience. We actually have a standing committee roster now included in this section of the document. So you can tell who is on what committee and by trustee what committees the trustees sit on. On March 24th, uh, we had the last QPSC. Uh, As always, two learning articles were included. The first was called the cost of poor quality. There's actually a cost associated with having suboptimal quality, it's a great article. And the second was creating a culture of continuous improvement. We then did our standard work of approving credentials, policies and procedures, and hearing from our chief quality officer, Dr. Tanvir Hussein on issues of safety, quality and true north metrics. Uh, and then we introduced a new standing agenda item, uh, if you will, conceived uh, by our CMO, our ACMO, and uh, our chief quality officer. And we we call this the quality improvement projects. This is a a new standing agenda item for which teams can come present their work. And this is, uh, I very very much look forward to this agenda item because there there is much good work which is done in the organization. And while while we certainly have our scars and wounds that that need to be addressed, there there are things that need to be celebrated and, and other teams can learn from them. The, the inaugural report was on John George Psychiatric Hospital's inpatient flow and throughput given by Dr. Tanu Siddhartha and Paula Austin Gandahari. I'll also make note that we received reports on safety and quality data analysis from the HETI team. And this was the first time that we've seen this kind of stuff. And for those of us who are interested in the HETI, which should be all of us, um, uh, it, it was, it's really remarkable data. It was a written report that is in your document. Uh, that'll close my report D1 and I will go to item D2, the finance committee, uh, chair esteem. Thank you. I apologize for my, uh, tardiness in submitting my written report, but it has been submitted to the board, uh, the, our clerk. Um, we met on April 7th and, Uh, Just as our board president announced a standing agenda item being added to the QPSC, we also have a new standing agenda item added to the finance committee, which is an educational agenda item. And the goal is to help increase digestibility of each meeting and also bring in this education to facilitate strategic forecasting and educate trustees as well as our viewing public. A few of the highlights from our meeting uh, were volume highlights. Our subacute services continue to drive improvements 
to throughput, both at AHS and at other facilities outside of our network, um, which is a great thing. Our subacute units have been shining stars. Um, our clinics have improved financially due to telehealth. Um, and there's some impact that may come from the state. At our previous meeting, a memo was discussed saying that the state may, re may eliminate reimbursements for telephone visits and may lower reimbursements for video visits. Um, and that could have financial impact as telehealth has been one of the ways that we have really managed finances during uh, the coronavirus pandemic when patients were unable to come in in person. Um, total COVID funding year to date is $29 million, which is great, a huge impact to our budget in a positive way. Um, another impact to our budget is that leave of absences are currently lower. And this budget report is based on the month of February. So 35 less leave of absences were reported compared to January. Um, but I think in the following month, we're gonna see some changes because the state of California is granting uh, state mandated COVID related sick leave for up to 10 days. Um, and this will be based upon disability rates of $511 per day maximum, um, which is gonna be very helpful for staff burnout prevention um, because the previous leaves from 2020 are no longer being offered. Um, we had questions about uh, 340B pharmaceutical claims. There were some holds. Those holds have been released, which was worth $20 million of billing. So another uh, good look for our budget uh, to be able to collect on those outstanding pharmaceutical bills. Um, our EPIC billing performance was the best since it had been implemented. Um, and that is because of the hard work of Terry Manifesto and her team. So we congratulated her then, we'll say it again. Great job, Terry and team. Um, we had an amendment to AB 85, and we expect that in April this month, we should see an extra, I don't know if it's extra, but $40 million of anticipated revenue. So again, big numbers coming through for our budget. And as we heard Dr. Abzali, and I had a brief exchange about capital expenditures following my visit to San Leandro Hospital. Um, we've got $6 million budgeted so far in this fiscal year. We've spent $13.1 million and anticipating that another $9.5 million will be spent before the end of the fourth quarter, which is really exciting because having this, these funds budgeted and being able to invest in our system is how we can improve patient care, patient outcomes, and the satisfaction of our staff. Um, average length of stay, I think we also heard a little bit about just a moment ago. It's still a little bit higher than our target at the campuses. And this is because of high acuity and of course, um, patients who show up with COVID. We had a huge uh, surge over the end of the year. Um, but in addition to that border hours at San Leandro Hospital and Alameda Hospital are high um, due to psych holds um, and patients waiting for transfer to John George Psychiatric Pavilion. Um, as a psych nurse, that makes me wonder about how our uh, patients and staff safety is impacted in our emergency rooms because the longer a psych patient stays in a setting that is not designed for their extended stay, um, the more opportunity you might have for those patients to decompensate um, there was a discussion of 
replacing sitters on 5150s in our inpatient units at Highland Hospital with uh, video monitoring, which is a very interesting concept that could save cost and help uh, potentially improve care in the same ways that uh, video monitoring helped with cardiac observation. Um, so this is in discussion. Uh, it's not yet been implemented, but it could be something creative that our staff is considering. Um, a very exciting announcement. I'll just repeat what was already said about nurse educators at John George and at San Leandro Hospital. We have a permanent nurse educator on staff now, which is huge. Um, really, really good. Um, Alameda Hospital and Highland have an interim clinical educator, education director position being posted um, because our former clinical education director, Ranjit, is no longer in that role. And if I got that wrong, guys, let me know because I felt like my notes might have been a little uh, obfuscated. Um, so the first educational presentation to our finance committee was given this month uh, by our CAO of Population Health, Tangerine Brigham. And her presentation was about the county organized health system. Uh, in February of this year, Alameda County began exploring a transition to a single county organized health system, um, something similar to Alameda Alliance or joining an existing county organized health system. Um, there's a letter of intent that will be filed by the county by the end of this month. And that is very exciting because that will also impact our finances and how we operate overall as a county and which of course impacts AHS. Um, yeah, I think we had a, a really exciting finance committee meeting. I know a lot of people may think finance committee is boring, but it will not be any longer. We will be bringing fireworks and excitement to our meeting. So please tune in on the first Wednesday of every month to our finance committee meetings so that we can learn more about our system and understand what's to come. Thank you, Board President. Thank you, uh, uh, Trustee Esteen. Uh, always your, your 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 effort and your wisdom and your guidance. Super appreciated. That's a heavy lift, that committee. Um, uh, you've come steep on the learning curve. We'll go to item D3. We, uh, we, uh, to, to let the audience know, we, we have a number of ad hoc committees. One of our most important ad hoc committee was, our first committee was our interim CEO recruitment. But this is also the onboarding and making sure our interim CEO has the has the right support necessary? Uh, Trustee Banerjee is the chair of this committee. Hi, Trustee Banerjee. Thank you, Chair Bukit. Um, glad to share with you. But before that, I wanted to tell uh, Trustee Esteen, yes, the finance committee meetings are riveting, and I, although I don't serve on them, I know that I I will be in the audience and uh, participating. Uh, there's just so much one can learn from there. Um, so on behalf of the CEO transition um, subcommittee, I want to thank my fellow um, uh, trustees, uh, Trustee Blue, Trustee Dong, and Trustee Bukit. Our um, work in this last month has been a, a twofold. One is what we spoke at the last uh, meeting was um, uh, really writing up a better job description for our CEO too. When we were recruiting um, for this, we wanted to do it with fidelity. We had found that the existing job description that we had for our CEO was inadequate. We kind of um, 
finessed it a little bit, but we really took this time. And I want to thank our COO, Mark Fratsky, who did just such an ex- excellent job of bringing together and um, um, really um, def- uh, creating uh, a job description in partnership with uh, Mr. Jackson that actually does um, um, reflect the role of this um, of this work. So. Um, that was one. And then the other one was really um, building out an instrument that would help us um, do a really comprehensive assessment of our interim CEO. We are doing this for a couple of reasons. One is that this is the three-month mark for um, Mr. Jackson. We wanted to know how the, um, it's just not the recruiting, it's how do we set up our uh, leaders for success, what are the processes that are happening, and also to gather feedback from our trusted value stakeholders so that we know what we need to do um, to shape the goals for this year as well. So um, we developed uh, in partnership a survey instrument. Thank you to our CHRO, um, Lorna Jones, James Jackson, Mark Fratsky again, and the and the ad hoc committee, um, and we made sure that this again it was a survey that's anonymous, fully anonymous, confidential, and we wanted to that that covers um, assesses on quality, on financial performance on operations performance on some of the goals that immediate goals that we had for our interim CEO to do as well as overall leadership and we wanted to make sure that this that this assessment happened with uh, both internal and external stakeholders so for our external stakeholders um, the, this assessment was sent to all of the uh, supervisors to our county administrator, to um, HICSA, um, to um, the um, finance director, to county auditor, CEO of the alliance, executive, um, our Alameda Healthcare District, mayors, um, to our CHCN partners, to California Public Health, to Erica Murray for our internal stakeholders. This, of course, was a self, the same instrument was used. So it was used as a self-assessment by Mr. Jackson, but also sent to the Board of Trustees, the ELT, all members of the Medical and the medical Executive Committee, nursing managers, union representatives, labor. So we think that we've got a really um, good um, 360 of stakeholders here um, the um, thank you to uh, folks from the HR department who, uh, you know, helped to do this at a very tight timeline. And the survey was launched on the 7th. And um, so um, I think, was it Jean Lu and Arlene Gomez, uh, Lorna, who helped uh, with that? I wanted to really give a shout out to the folks or any others who have also uh, helped um and the deadline for that is april 20th so if you haven't there's still time every feedback is a gift as we always say this is going to this is so crucial for us because it's going to 
and not only tell us how um, Mr. Jackson is doing, but most importantly, help us develop and uh, the goals for the rest of 2021 as well and and for future. But I'll defer to my um, fellow committee members to share your insights through about this process and the communication, dissemination, synthesis plans. Thank you, Trustee Banerjee. And any trustees or, or committees who will member comment, I, I, I thought you captured it pretty well and, and the hat is tipped to you for the, the significant late hour work that you did. You went, that, 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 that's an above and beyond ward. I, I, I'd say this is the most expansive CEO um, uh, evaluation that I've been a part of since I've, since I've been at this organization. So let, let, thank you for that work. And uh, if you if you if if that is in your inbox, it serves the system to fill it out. So please do so. And the expectation, of course, is that all trustees fill it out. So with that, any other comments on item D three? I need to okay, apologize. Um, sorry, sorry um, to the chair. Trustee Jensen. No, no, no apologies. To the chair, um, I, my only comment is that there's. Um, I just wanted to update the um, uh, or point out um, an error in the item, which is that um, Trustee Dong is listed as the secretary for the board, and it's actually Trustee Esteem. Where is that? Where is that error? That's on page um, 47. Ma Madam Clerk, will you make note of that? Got it. Got it. Okay. Um, uh, I need to step a little bit back and then uh, I, we have an invited guest who's been waiting a little while for us. Uh, hello, John. Um, there was actually a public comment on an agendized item. My apologies, I, I didn't see it. Um, this is a comment on the finance report from Mr. Nato Green. Mr. Green, welcome. Uh, uh, hello, uh, Dr. Bouquet. Good, good to talk to you. Hello, bye, bye, bye. I, um, I, I like the walking commentary. I love it. <laughs> you know this I, i'm trying to get my steps in man um so uh it's, uh, it's, you all know the, it's uh, nato's two minutes on the clock acceptable yeah that's fine i'll be i'll okay. be super brief um uh obviously you all know that um SCLU 10 to 1 has ratified our contracts with ahs um they were ratified overwhelmingly we counted the votes on friday the participation was very high our members are positive and um, optimistic about the transition, and uh, I promise that we will um, be all over all of you about all of the problems that we need to solve in implementing these contracts um, and working together to improve things going forward. Um, there are some other things that we've been thinking about that we'll be coming back to you with, and I, and I know that you're hearing stuff in public comment. I just wanted to react quickly to the finance report. Um, uh, you know, Trustee Esteen's comments about the positive um, effect on the clinic budgets from the availability of telehealth and the concerns about possible state policy on the on the horizon. And um, I just wanted to encourage AHS leadership to reach out to SEIU. Um, I know the SEIU State Council in Sacramento is, is involved in advocacy around the policy on telehealth and um you know, if we should we should at least not be at cross purposes with AHS if uh, if we don't intend to be. Um, so um, you know, if there, if there's an opportunity to make sure that we're working in tandem on that issue, um, and SEIU can can uh, make sure that um, 
you know, that we're amplifying uh, the, the financial well-being of the system in a way that works for our members and patients, then that's, that's something that we want to do. So I hope someone follows up with me to talk about how we can work on specifically state policy around telehealth. NATO, thank you for your comments as always, sir. Um, with that, we will now close out item D and we'll move into consent agenda. Before, uh, before we make any motions, I, I want to, I have a comment. Item E3, trustees, adopt a resolution approving Alameda County Behavioral Health Care Services Agency contract signature authorization form. We're pulling it. It, it, it isn't ready for prime time right now. So, so with, with noting that E3 has been pulled, the consent agenda is before you before entertaining a motion to improve uh, to approve items E1, E2, and E4, are there any items that need to be removed for discussion? So, so with that, I'd, I'd be happy to entertain a motion to approve the consent agenda in its entirety with exception of E3. So move. Second. Uh, uh, um, Madam Clerk, roll call, please. Yes, Trustee Banerjee. Aye. Trustee Bouquet. Aye. Trustee Blue. Aye. Trustee Dong. Aye. Trustee Esteen. Aye. Trustee Fox. Aye. Trustee Jensen. Aye. And Trustee Splendoria. Aye. Aye. Your motion passes. Thank you. Thank you. The consent agenda is approved. Appreciated. We move into item F now. Uh, uh, so there are four items here. I, I'm very cognizant of the clock. Trustees closed session is anticipating 90 minutes approximately on closed session. So we'll keep moving here. Item F1 as a brief introduction. It's entitled introduction to supplemental funding. I'm, I'm very pleased, although I haven't been a good host because I'm running late, uh, to, to have Mr. John Minot. He is the director of policy for the California Association of Public Health. I would argue that no one knows this stuff m better than John. And why we've invited John is part of our, our board learning and for the public's learning for that matter, because supplemental funding, we do not survive without supplemental funding. So it's essential for us to, to have an understanding of this. As an FYI trustees, this is sort of a two part. I conned John into giving this in two parts. He's going to give us one this evening, and then we're, we, we're going to be blessed to have him return to our, our retreat because we got to understand this stuff. So with that, I give the floor uh, to Mr. John Minot. Welcome, John. Apologies for running late. Thanks. No problem. Of course, I understand. Um, thanks, trustees and everyone, for uh, allowing me this time to talk about sub, uh, supplemental funding. Um, with your permission, I will share my screen now to give the presentation. I don't know if anyone looks at packets in another form, but I would recommend... Oh, I am not enabled to share the screen at the moment. Um, Ahmad, can we give uh, Mr. Mo a share screen capacity? Um, yeah, I was as I was saying, if anyone uh, is in the habit of looking at a packet other ways, I would recommend you look at the screen as there are some animations that are supposed to help here. Uh, it looks like I've been enabled. Okay. Mr. Minot, our trustees better have looked at the packet. <laughs> okay. So, uh, as was said, I am uh, Director of Policy at the California Association of Public Hospitals and Health Systems, of which Alameda Health System is a member. And 
The goal of this presentation is to tell you about, uh, give you a background for understanding the supplemental payments. Um, I know that, you know, I've worked on this for a long time. I know that even for the most technically minded people, it can be a heavy lift. There are a lot of concepts involved. So I wanted to start out with some of the important building blocks for understanding the specific payment programs. So tonight you're not going to hear about specific payment programs, but more the principles under which they operate. What are supplemental payments? Why do they exist? Uh, what ways do they come? And what are some of the main limitations of them? So uh, for the retreat meeting, th this will be the building block for understanding the individual programs, how much they are, what are the ways they can be improved, and so forth. Um, and please uh, stop me if I'm uh, being uh, abstru too abstruse on something to understand. So first, the, the greatest background of all of this is Medi-Cal, which uh, is our California name for the federal program of Medicaid, which is a full public health insurance coverage program, uh, which is uh, complicated, but essentially is supposed to be based on people who, uh, quote, need it people who are allowed in based on income levels, disabilities, or other needs. The key point around supplemental payments is that Medi-Cal is jointly managed and financed by the state and federal governments. Because that, that, is, that joint financing is our springboard. Now, how does the federal government determine how much money to put in? The, ba the main method essentially is the federal medical assistance percentage or the FMAP. That is the really the biggest part of what you would call the deal between the state and federal governments that started in the 60s and continues to this day. Depending on what services are you're talking about, the federal medical assistance percentage can be 50% or 90%, sometimes other things. Easy to think of it as 70% overall. And the reason I say this is the deal is that there is not actually an overall cap on how much the federal government can spend on Medicaid. Effectively, if it is a legitimate Medicaid expense, and whether it is is complicated, then the federal government will pay that amount times 50% or 90%. So that's very important, because it's different from you know, grant programs where there's a set pool of funding. But of course, the, the, because of the uh, finance, finance sharing, that if it's a Medi-Cal expenditure, the state also shares in financing the program. So what does that look like? So this is a very, very simple, simplified example. Suppose you have a Medi-Cal service. Suppose someone comes in for an x-ray and the applicable Medi-Cal rate for that is $100, just making this example up. So then the total Medi-Cal payment is going to be $100, but that is going to have a federal component, which here, at, at the 50% level, that's $50 federal, $50 state, which together make the $100, which we call the gross or total computable Medi-Cal payment. The important thing here is that the non-federal portion, the blue you see here at the bottom, is the state, and it's the state sharing with the federal government, but it doesn't have to be state as in general fund. It doesn't have to be Sacramento. It can be state in the sense of a local entity acting uh, in the shoes of the state. So AHS, which is a health authority, can provide this non-federal share in lieu of the state doing it. 
which means that it doesn't need budget allocation, which is uh, which goes a long way. So that's the very, very, very start of the principles. And I'll move on from here. So we use this to pull down additional federal funding. And here I want to stop and explain two key terms that come up all the time. The first is self-financing. And that is the situation that we, as local public health care systems, often find ourselves in, that we are sort of wearing two hats. We are funding the payments. We are being like a government that is funding a program. We are putting tax money or other money into this program so that it can exist. And then at the same time, wearing our other hat, we are providing this service that is being financed. So that's go you're going to see what that looks like in a minute. But that's what we mean by self-financing. We are both the provider of non-federal share and we are the provider of the funding. Now, this usually, but not always, self-financing comes in the form of supplemental payments. Because as you probably know, uh, through reputation, uh, Medi-Cal as a program does not pay as well as other, um, as other payer programs, other payer sources. So we get supplemental payments, which are payments over and above that Medi-Cal amount. So there are several of these supplemental payment programs that exist, and, and they are usually self-financing. Now, for, now I want to turn to the mechanics, because this is pretty important, um, especially as we get to each individual program. So we are providing non-federal share to pull down federal funding. That means you have to follow the federal rules. And one of the federal rules is that if it is a local government and not a state, not the central state government that is doing the funding, you have to do it by one of these two very specific ways. The first is certified public expenditures or CPEs. The second is intergovernmental transport or IGTs. So neither of these is a program. These are both ways to get federal funding. So let me show you how these uh, how these work. So this animation here, we're, we're imagining three entities. At the bottom is the public provider, which is also a local governmental entity. In the middle is the state. And at the top is the federal government. The order is important here, which is why I've animated it. The first, this is a CPE. The first step that has to happen conceptually for a CPE to be funded is that the public provider has to spend money on services directly, make an expenditure. Step two, they certify to the state that they have made that expenditure and that that expenditure is Medi-Cal, hence the name sort of CPE, Certified Public Expenditure. The state passes that claim in some form, this is a simplification, but the state passes it up to the federal government the federal government says, great, so that's a $200 Medi-Cal expenditure times our FMAP of 50%, and they will send down $100 of federal money. The state then has that $100 and can send it down to the public provider that provided that, that made that expenditure. So here you've spent $200 and received 100. But an important limitation on it this way is that you have to have had a service cost in the past. It has to be all. So you cannot do this before the fact. You have to do it after the fact. 
and the total payment can be no more than costs. So that's, a, that's another limitation. Now IGTs. IGTs look similar in many ways, but the order is different. The first step for doing an IGT is that the public provider has to actually transfer funds, do a wire transfer or write a check, and that will go to a fund that the state holds temporarily. That has to, uh, that has $100 is associated with a program where the total spending is going to be $200. Now, the state does not transfer the money to the federal government. They don't need to do that. But the federal government still sees, okay, the total amount to be spent, both shares, is $200. So our share, once again, $200 times 50% is $100. Now the state has both the uh, our 100 and the federal government's 100, and so now they can pass both of those, the 200, back to the public provider. And at this point, we can uh, spend on a service that matches this payment, and critically, here it, we are not necessarily limited to costs. So if you want to do pay for performance or payment before the fact, such as on a per member per month basis for people who don't haven't necessarily had services yet, usually you have to do it as an IGT because the CPE will not uh, correspond to the direct cost. So I've been emphasizing the differences between these two means of financing, but really, at the end of the day, in both of those examples in the past, the new federal funding to your system would have been $100. So really, there are two ways to do the same thing. And both of these point to the fundamental clash in perspective between us at the local or state level and the federal government that is putting, giving this funding. Because in these examples, as I said, we are left with $100. But from the federal government's perspective, whether it's a CPE or an IGT, in any of those circumstances, the federal government views $200 as the paid amount. You know, we see it as the federal amount, but they see it as the total amount. And if you, if you want to say who's right, you really can't because the federal government is right in its own way and we are right in our way. Because from the federal perspective, the $200 was the Medi-Cal program payments. So why is this a problem? Because we're still getting the money. But here's the problem that that leads to. It leads, if you are self-financing for almost everything, and we are self-financing for quite a lot with these supplemental payments, Remember I said that the FMAP works out, the federal matching rate works out to about 70% overall. Suppose you could get all of your costs covered with CPEs or IGTs. All your costs, 100%. Well, after your share, that's just 70%. And from the federal government's perspective, it's 100% and you have no shortfall, nothing that other subsidies can come in and help with. Now, on the plus side, 70% is going to be better than what Medi-Cal would usually pay. But it means that what, but once you've gotten your payments up to roughly costs, it gets harder and harder to justify more supplemental payments. Now, sometimes you can, but it's not a, it's not a hard and fast rule. 
But this is the trap that we sort of find ourselves in that we can add supplemental payments because it doesn't need state general fund, but it makes these losses larger and larger over time the more we rely on self-financed payments. And in practice, that has to be filled with funds that are not Medi-Cal. So in the safety net world, that is things like realignment, county funds like Measure A, tobacco settlement. If you're making any profits on third-party payers, that can help. But that that will always be a a loss that essentially... No matter how well you do in being efficient in, in some sometimes in some of these programs, you are still going to have, if you're self-financing, you are going to uh, incur this loss. Now, that doesn't mean that being more efficient doesn't help. It does. But it means that, uh, that some, of the, some of this problem is going to be here for as long as we have self-financing. Now, you may also ask, if we can put up our, uh, our share and get pull down federal money, why can't we just put up a billion, get back a billion, solve our problems for a while? Get, get back two billion, excuse me. And there, of course, the problem is that what you're, what you're putting up has to meet the Medi-Cal rules. It has to have a vehicle that is within the written Medi-Cal program that says that this overall payment is a reasonable payment. The federal government may not have an an overall limit on how much money they can put up, but they have lots of rules about how the payments work, and you have to follow one of them. So these are what I would call the three biggest vehicles by which we create supplemental funds in collaboration with the state. The Medi-Cal program is much more complicated than this, but this is in the public health system context, the, th- the three big ones. The first is 1115 waivers, which are demonstration programs. So these are time limited. They're supposed to be showing that you can do something new and innovative. And some examples of this that are major for Alameda are prime, full person care, and global payment program. The other really big one is managed care or supplementals. So here, these are plans that these are payments that do not go directly to you like waiver payments usually do, but flow through plans like Alameda Alliance, which may have some sometimes have discretion over whether they then pay it back to you. And I'll be talking a lot more about this in the next uh, meeting. But exa- the big categories of this payment are EPP, which enhanced payment program, QIP, quality incentive program, and rate range. Finally, it's also possible for these supplemental payments to be built into the state plan, which is the more formal, permanent way the Medi-Cal program runs um, that is not, um, yeah, just the basic plan. So these can be permanent, but they tend to have more limitations than the way waivers work and managed care supplementals work. They have a different system for what is the upper limit. But we did recently get a big new program here, graduate medical education. So this is really just scratching the surface of the vehicles. But I encourage you to think about this and remember it because we are going to go into all of these examples at the board at the board retreat in two weeks. So we're, we're going to be talking about 
what does it mean to get these payments through a waiver? What does it mean to get them through a plan? What do we need to do to earn them? Are they permanent? How are they trending? All of these things. But th this is basically the way to think about the supplemental programs. We put up a share of it. There is a federal share of it, which is what we're really going for. It has to be through an allowed vehicle in Medi-Cal and follow certain Medi-Cal rules. Thank you for your time and uh, happy to take your questions. John, do you mind giving us back the screen? Trustees, um, let's, let's open it up for questions. Uh, uh, Trustee Fox, first hand up, how brave of you. Um, so thank you, thank you for that explanation, John. Um, the fact that these are, these payments are supplemental to the regular reimbursement that the hospitals get for seeing patients. Um, uh, my perception is that uh, Medi-Cal Medi reimbursement, whether it's coming on a fee-for-service basis from the state or from uh, managed care plans, this, uh, that reimbursement itself covers somewhere between 50 and 70% of the cost of providing the service. Is, is that approximately true? Uh, it depends on the system, so I don't have I don't know for sure, but I and I would say maybe on average more on the lower end. Okay. Um, but uh, yeah, and th this builds on that. So where you're saying that the um, that the supplemental payments average out to around seventy percent of the cost uh. of the service, is that what the what the hospitals get? when you add the supplemental payments to the regular reimbursement uh, or is that 70% in addition to the regular re reimbursement? In other words, if let's say for a month we had a hundred inpatients and, and for that, and for those patients, we collected uh, $250,000 um, and our cost was $350,000. Would would the uh, uh, let's say our cost was five hundred? We collected two fifty. Our cost is five hundred. Would the supplemental payments make up that difference, or seventy percent of that difference, or or would they get us to seventy percent of that cost? So sorry, I should have been clearer. Uh, seventy percent was more of a hypothetical of if everything were self financed, if there were no state money involved, but the total amount were cost what would the net reimbursement be? So that's not really an assessment of where we are now. There, there, it did in the past work, a, a lot of our payments did work such that they were, quote, getting us up to costs so that we would get a certain amount, that would be a small proportion of costs, and then over that we would have an additional amount of costs that could be uh, self-financed. That method still exists, but it is shrinking because that is how it works in fee-for-service. In managed care, we do not get to be reimbursed at cost, even in the supplementals. So with managed care, which is 
I think for everyone, at least double or even triple fee for service these days. Um, there is um, uh, there is much more complexity because it has to be prospective. Uh, it does work out. It it does work out that you get you know payments that are contractual, you know, based on negotiations, and then you have supplemental payments which are not subject to contract usually. And then, yes, that makes up a lot of the difference. Occasionally, it could make up even more of the difference. You could get to 80 or 90%. It depends on what programs are available and how well you're functioning within them. Does that help answer your question? Yeah. Trustee Dong, I see your hand up, and then Trustee Esteen after Trustee Dong. Hi, Trustee Dong. Hi, everyone. Sorry I was late. Thank you, John, for your presentation. I have a kind of a forecasting question. Do you see expansion or constriction in any of the supplemental funding fields? Or do you expect them to stay the same? So um, mostly I will defer to my next presentation there because it really depends on what, what vehicles they are. As mm -hmm. I when it's through a waiver, that has to be time limited. Very commonly it's five years. And, but very often, very often the federal government is looking to take successful demonstration projects and make them permanent in some different form, which is not necessarily always as useful for us. Mm -hmm. So, uh, so uh, but there are others that are permanent. There are some that uh, require renewal every year. So it depends on, uh, it does depend, frankly, on the politics at the federal level to some extent. Um, but it also depends on the policy goals of CMS, which are not always identical to uh, the White House. Mm -hmm. um, and there, yeah, so it, it I'm afraid I, uh, I, I have to say it depends and direct you to our, uh, my next presentation. Okay, well, I'll, I'll look forward to that, John. Thank you. Trustee Esteen. Um, your answer, it depends, really highlights so much. Thank you for this presentation. I think that uh, you did help to crystallize some incredibly difficult concepts um, and highlight why our finance committee needs to have educational presentations every single month because there's a lot that we need to understand about our budget. Um, it also feels like with the, the fuzzy math, the money moving up and down and to the state, to the feds and back, um, you know, reimbursements that can't have any profit. It seems as though the goal of our government is actually to squeeze public health systems so that they always lose money, which is a, a shocking thing to imagine and, and conceptualize because everything is so complicated. The sources of funding are so complicated. Our patients typically are indigent or have Medi-Cal, governmental reimbursements. And, uh, and as a public health system and as a county, uh, you know, funded system, it's legally our duty to provide these services. But statewide, many hospitals in rural areas are constantly being shut down. And it's because they can't monetarily, financially, numerically pay the bills. They just can't, can't get it right. So how do we maneuver correctly so that we can get the right amount of reimbursements and keep our doors open 
and pay our staff at the same time and provide quality mm -hmm. care and invest in our system and you know do capital expenditures to update our aging infrastructure. So you've brought up a lot. Um, ultimately, it, uh, it there is once again the political aspect to it that it comes down to the ability of the state to fund the program and the measures they resort to when they can't. Uh, as you can imagine, when you look back at the history of the state, um, you know, especially with the uh, limited tax revenue at the state level, you see major, major cuts in recession years and usually not a lot of reinvestment in better years. And that has really solidified. So, you know, at multiple recessions in the past, we have taken more advantage of supplemental funding in order to make up that gap. But then that brings us to this great reliance on that supplemental funding now. And yeah, sometimes it does feel like the um, the limited, limited reimbursement and limited overall investment means that when you achieve savings, then that instead of reinvesting those savings, those can be squeezed out via, for example, plans being paid less. So there are practical things I can discuss uh, and will discuss uh, at next, the next meeting about um, what kinds of activities you can, undergo, you can uh, engage in that will um, make it easier to earn the supplemental funds and also easier to justify them in future years as they have to be renewed. One traditional, the recurring theme is value. You know, we, uh, we, the public health care systems, historically went to the state and federal government with this attitude of, we are essential, you have to keep us open, there is no alternative, which is true, but it also wasn't enough. Right. One, one of our solutions in the past has been to move to pay for performance, to show that we are meeting quality metrics or other performance metrics, and that justifies additional investments. So uh, we, have made, we have done very well off some of those pay-for-performance programs, but they require, uh, they require meeting those metrics. Um, now, moving, now that Prime is gone, we're moving into QIP, I think you're aware, and QIP is getting larger and harder to earn. So the one thing I will keep coming back to is the ability to quantitatively demonstrate value to those above the chain which is always difficult and may, see, may seem Sisyphean. Also, you know, the, the um, of course, uh, the political goal of improving Medi-Cal as a program and more fully funding it at the um, state and federal levels, because our existence is political in a way as well. And so that's going to be part of the solution. Yeah, thank you for answering that, that multifaceted question. Trustee Splendorio. Yeah, thank you, John. I'm Splend Splendorio, and I and I first let me just say, um, I'm on Amazon. I'm looking for um, Medi-Cal for dummies, reimbursed for dummies, written by you, and I'm not finding it. Um, <laughs> uh, but you did a, a really good job of trying, which I, I obviously is a very complex. Um, but I, I'm following on Jen's and Jeanette's com um, questions. At the retreat, I mean, what you've explained is what is the current reimbursement system. Um, 
and and I assume it's been on for a few years, but it seems to evolve over time. I think that's what I'm gathering from you. Uh, I would, and I know you've mentioned a little bit about forecasts, what you see in the future. I would love to hear more where you think it's going, and I guess guide us as to how we can take advantage of where you think it's going. And that's probably the hardest thing to do, but that's that's what I'm. You know, staying ahead of the curve, as they say, mm-hmm. is hard, but that seems to me that that's what, what that's what our job is. Yeah, um, you're right on all of those fronts that it is important and it is also extraordinarily difficult to forecast the direction things are going. Um, I would say that, you know, for <laughs> for at least 12, 15 years now, we've been talking about the movement from paying for services to paying for value such that it might sound um, uh, trite at this point. Um, I think it is still going, uh, it is still a a factor because we have made our pay for performance programs essentially permanent. We hope permanent. They are no longer demonstration programs. Um, They, they are being renewed year after year. Um, and we are going to have to show not just clinical quality, but um, e- excellence in care on other dimensions, I think, like appointment times, specialty care, um, access, um, all of which, of course, is challenging. Um, but we, uh, the other thing I would say is that the direction the state the the strategic direction of the state in managing medical for a long time has been devolving to medical managed care to to hmos like alameda alliance and i don't know if you've been briefed on the on calaim uh, but in calaim for example okay uh, that's that's more a county thing sorry but um, but they care about limiting risk and making sure that plans are shouldering that risk by taking capitated lives. And more and more over time is moved into managed care. Um, For example, over the past several years, um, Medicare, Medi-Cal dual eligibles have been more thoroughly moved into managed care. Um, They are moving long-term care, which was previously carved out into managed care, Many, many things are carved out of managed care, and there is probably a desire to move as much in as possible um, when the opportunity arises. Um, That puts the managed care plans in an extremely important position. The relationship with them is critical, not, not just like it's critical now, but more so. Additionally, something we think about is should the man what is the proper role of the managed care plans? And is there some part of that role that we can take off their shoulders? You know, if we can manage uh, patient lives effectively, giving people primary care, specialty care, not just hospital care, does that put us in a better strategic position? Because could we, you know, take lives from the plans almost directly the way Kaiser does? I know that's. I know that even moving to primary care capitation is a heavy lift. Um, you know, to being responsible just for patients' primary care. But if you're, if you want to know about strategic questions, that is one thing that keeps coming up. What are the plans really adapted to, 
and how much of that could we theoretically do? So that's one that's one direction we think about. Trustee Fox and then I Trustee just just one more quick comment and request, and that is um, at at AHS we don't need to you know reinvent the wheel, and maybe at the retreat if you could tell us if there are some county systems that are doing a better job at navigating all this and how they put it all together than we are. Mm -hmm. uh, that would be, we would really like to know about that mm -hmm. uh, because I, th I know many of us are new and, and we're trying to figure it out and thinking about how in the world are we going to climb this mountain? But if they're doing better in San Diego or San Jose or somewhere, and you are aware of what they're doing, we'd sure like to know what, what that's about. Noted. Trustee Esteem. Yeah, I think I was going to speak to the for-profit piece or even the not-for-profit piece, uh, but a company like Kaiser with, you know, 30 plus billion dollars in reserves. Um, we have new excellent leadership in our CEO and COO and executive leadership team. Um, but we're talking about spending, you know, double-digit millions in capital expenditures, and that is uh, huge for our budget. You know, it's, it's we're, we still have a net negative balance with the county. Um, it feels like an unrealistic expectation for us to hit all these metrics without being able to fully invest in our system and our um, infrastructure in meaningful ways. You know, we still, last month we got rid of... Uh, 25, $26 million of, of staff that we couldn't even hire because of inefficiencies. So, you know, it's like, how do we make our system the most excellent in order to secure these hard to get dollars from the government uh, when we need the dollars so that we can provide best care to get the dollars? Mm -hmm. This is Sisyphean yeah. it's, it's and all, it's also a, a bootstraps thing. I recognize that yeah. ask, asking you to pull yourself up by your bootstraps is uh, was is a term that means a physical impossibility. So, yeah. yeah. Well, uh, John, uh, uh, on behalf of the trustees, and well, we 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 um, appreciate your presentation. You have a unique knowledge set, and uh, you you have a mastery of it. So, I, I tip my hat to you. You know. Uh, I was thinking about this way, way back when I once signed up for a physical chemistry class and I sat in that class for two weeks and I just like, I don't get it. I unfortunately have that feeling right now. <laughs> so, so I think all of the trustees, our job is to go through your excellent slide set, try to re-educate ourselves on this as, as, as a framework to when we move into the retreat. What I, what I took home, I, I try to distill down to a couple bullet points. Uh, so what I heard is, uh, and, and correct me, number one, with regards to Medi-Cal, a self-financing organization is a structural loser no, uh, uh, with regard to payments. Yes, not, not inevitably, but on the whole, yes. Okay. Two, Alameda Health System is a self-financing organization. <laughs> no, number three, the way that the, 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 the thin opportunity to leverage that delta is through one of these three vehicles you discussed, 1115 waivers, managed care supplementals, or the state plan for Medicaid. Mm -hmm. So our focus needs to be uh, considered on that. Does that sound like an adequate summary? Yes, yes. 
There was a pause. Yes, you can. You well, can say. Well, when you say, <laughs> well, when you say our focus needs to be considered on that for for your purposes, for the board of trustees under um, working with the AHS budget, then y yes, it's very much okay. three vehicles because these are what is before us right now, and these are what we're trying to improve. In addition to that, there is, of course, you know, direct state investments, other other financing improvements, which are not going through, um, which are not going through these vehicles necessarily. They can be a straight new investment. Um, okay. That is not as that is not that is not unique to the public healthcare systems. Okay. So that's a little different. Got it. Um, I would also say that we do recognize that we are in this. We have made this trap for ourselves and are. are are also at, at a statewide level as our association CAPH looking to find ways to uh, to bring more uh, state investment into uh, into our systems um, because for this very reason that it can't just be federal funds. John, once again, I appreciate it. You've thrown the gauntlet down. It is now on this set of trustees and this executive leadership team to digest and understand what you've taught us and, and then and to, to, to help us examine the situation. So appreciate you. We will see you again on April 30th. Thank you again for yes. the, your, your time this evening. With yes, that, we'll close item F1 and we will go into item F2. The status of the FY22 budget, uh, this is a, hopefully will be a relatively quick item. I, I'm doing a time check at 7.50 p.m. Um, this one I've given to, uh, we've given to our CFO, uh, Kim Miranda, and our finance chair committee to tag team on this. Um, but if we can, let's try to do this in 10. Oh, actually, I see our, is our, is our chief operating officer giving this one? Okay. I, I think maybe just, uh, I, I have Mark Frasky fully big on my screen, which is kind of cool. So he did. <laughs> uh, so so I'll give I'll, I'll give this one to uh, 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 Ms. Miranda and Trustee Esteem. All right. So let me share my screen here. Try to do it from uh, my laptop. Hopefully, you all can see that. Can everyone see it? Okay. Kim, is is ten minutes doable? I'll go quick, yes. Okay. All right. So this is the status of the budget. Um, just as a reminder, when you can see that, okay. Um, the Budget Oversight Committee uh, provides us the direction to complete the budget. Um, they are responsible for executing the goals of the Board of Trustees. This includes the global assumptions like our volumes our consumer price index, um, our labor, and our uh, CPI on just general contracts like dietary or purchase services, any of those sorts of things. They also provide leadership um, for our individual cost centers to ensure that we hit the targets and that we have, uh, uh, that our leaders have done the due diligence on their budgets. And they also if there's any initiatives we want to build in, and there are many in regard to operational improvements. And the membership of the committee is the CEO, the COO, the Chief Human Resources Officer, myself, and also the Chief Medical Officer. And my uh, financial planning and analysis group supports um, the committee. 
So as a reminder, the board approved these goals and principles. Um, first, that the budget would be practical. Uh, we were going to start with our history pre-COVID. We are going to layer on the impact of external factors, including COVID. Uh, we want the budget to be sustainable. Um, however, we do not believe that we will be able to generate cash flow to pay back recoupments from many years ago and that we are going to need to engage with the county to ensure that we don't um, that we have a sustainable plan um, we are also been asked to stretch to um, continuously improve our efficiency and to reduce our cost structure so there's a lot of initiatives that I'm that are on the next slide here that we are working on to do that. Overall, the uh, plan as um, laid out by the Finance Committee is to have a break-even um, bottom line. So that's after depreciation, not EBITDA that we've been talking about before, EBITDA being, being earnings before interest, depreciation, and amortization, which is in essence what I call cash flow. Uh, we want to actually be break-even after covering depreciation. And uh, that makes a lot of sense because if we can constantly generate enough money, uh, at least equal to that depreciation, then we should be able to have capital to um, maintain and grow our organization. So where are we? We are in the March, April timeframe. And what's happening now is the uh, leaders over all of the uh, departmental budgets have looked at them. Their job is to validate them, to make sure we haven't missed anything, there's no errors in them, and that you know they can continue to operate their part of the organization. Um, they completed that work on Monday. There's some follow-up happening, and then my team will um, accumulate all of the results. Some folks may have had to increase their budget, some might have found savings. We need to accumulate all of that to understand the impact. What will happen between now and May is we will work with the Budget Oversight Committee to determine what operational improvements we can build into the budget. And then we will be working on the presentation to the board in June and then go ahead and load it and implement it for July. So this is where we are. We started out in a hole, which we've reported before. It's about a $67 million uh, starting point from an EBITDA or cash flow projected. And in regard to net income, it's about $163 million. So the Budget Oversight Committee laid out the assumptions for this year. Um, first off was to try to eliminate vacancies from the budget to really... Um, hone in on the labor cost per unit of service. So the idea there conceptually is that we have the correct number of labor hours to perform certain tasks, not to cut them, but to make sure that we have labor as necessary based on the units of service. Um, we had non-CPI increases. Those were mostly based on Vizient projections. And then we looked at our volumes and we were determined that we could add $20 million of charges um, based on using EPIC 
uh, and we basically applied current EPIC charges to the volumes, statistical volumes that we have historically used. Um, there will be a net income impact, but we have not calculated it yet, so it is not in this slide. So again, that's the volume impact. Then we have a, a wage CPI, it's a placeholder. And then there's uh, the benefit costs. Benefits include you know, health insurance, general taxes, uh, retirement. Then there's this big TDD, and that's the manager edits. And those we are waiting to accumulate now. So I will be able to update you that uh, for the treat, retreat for sure. Then we have this big gap, and this gap is 42 million on an EBITDA or cash flow basis, and 99.2 million on a net income um, to get us to break even, and that's why the total down there is zero. So though that's the target for our performance improvement. So these are the areas that we're looking at to try to close that gap. Uh, we do have a high overtime number if you compare us to other organizations. So we think there's an opportunity to reduce overtime. Uh, we know our length of stay. We talked about that, or, or Trustee Esteem talked about that earlier, that we do have folks staying here longer than um, what other uh, facilities keep their patients. Uh, we know that there is some uh, flexing opportunities and labor optimization to happen. We know that at John George, we need to do a better job of billing and collecting with the county. We also have revenue cycle enhancements. We've invested in Epic, and we truly do believe that we are going to see improved cash flow from that investment. We've got payer contracts that are in place right now that we're, we're negotiating, that there should be some increases. We really want to work on the vacancies. We don't want to you know, start the budget year to people that that are not really going to be realized and haven't been realized historically. Uh, we're working on a dental FQ, um, IOP. We've talked about that a lot. Um, we've got uh, opportunities in out-of-network for our HPAC patients and also within the foundation. So all of these are being looked at. Uh, numbers are being crunched. The Budget Oversight Committee is taking a look at the opportunities to make sure that what we build in is reasonable and can be achieved. Uh, I just want to remind everybody about our FTE trends. You can see the gap between the red and the blue line. That's the gap between budget and actual. That gap goes back many years. There's always been a gap. And they crossed during COVID because of the leaves of absences. We gave every employee that qualified up to 12 weeks leave during the pandemic. Now that those ended as of uh, December 31st, so the gap is now returned. So we don't want to build a budget with all of that extra cost in there when we've never really realized it. So it's a big part of the, um, the plan to help us achieve the targets. So here's the timeline. Um, we rolled out the budget. They've looked at it. They have provided their, the leadership team has provided their feedback. We're going to provide you all an update at the retreat with where we are with doing those performance on improvements, as well as what the net impact was from all of the review from leadership. 
And then we'll be working on a presentation in May of the preliminary budget and then a final budget to finance committee on June 2nd. So that's my presentation. Happy to answer questions. Trustees? Trustees, any questions for our CFO? Uh, Chair Esteen, any comments right, why, right when you put food in your mouth? <laughs> Since I know we're going to have a long meeting with the long closed session. Um, no, I think uh, our CFO went into great details. This is uh, what we already heard at our finance committee meeting, um, which again, everyone is welcome to tune in because it's super exciting when you hear it there. Um, I'd say much more exciting in the finance committee than in this full board meeting. Uh, uh, and some of that I touched on during my chair report. Ultimately, what I think is the most uh, exciting piece is that we want to try to get to break even. And uh, traditionally, we have had this net negative balance with the county. And um, we work in a system that has a billion dollar budget. And yeah, we yeah. are struggling with the supplemental uh, financing process that we heard from Mr. Minot a moment ago. So, uh, you know, we'll do our best. I think we have to be aspirational. And with our leadership of our CEO and CFO and and uh, COO and CMO and CHRO and all the people with C's <laughs> in some suite, I think that we can get there along with the, the complete collaboration of our staff and, uh, and managerial workforce. Thank you, Trustee Esteem, and, and of course, uh, thank you to Kim uh, for, for, I mean, this is this is heavy lifting stuff, right? And uh, so, uh, uh, trustees, this is next on our list of to-do. We got to get a balanced budget in um, for, for the next fiscal. So uh, I'm going to preview the next item, and our, our brains need to be put to this. Um, obviously, uh, uh, the Budget Oversight Committee is doing the heavy, heavy lifting, and our, and our job is to look it over as well. Uh, so thank you for that report, Kim. Uh, I know that was a lot of stuff and that was fast, but I, we appreciate it. With that, we'll close item F2. We'll go into item F3. This is board prep and planning. This is a little bit of a preview about what we've been talking about this evening. Uh, uh, to the trustees and the audience, on Friday, April 30th, we will have an all-day, our first uh, for this board, all-day retreat. It'll begin, a pro it'll be a Zoom meeting. It'll begin approximately 0900 and, and the open session will close approximately 5 p.m. Uh, this is a tentative agenda, but I'm going to give you broad strokes. There are four key elements uh, to uh, envisioned in the in the working agenda. First is governance. Uh, it, it's it's one of the top, in my opinion, one of the top three things that we needed to accomplish after hiring a, a CEO, getting union contracts across uh, uh, the finish line, and 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 figuring out the governance. We've invited Supervisor Chan. Uh, uh, I've had uh, I've been in contact with her office uh, today, and uh, uh, she is scheduled to be agenda item A one to give us the 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 feel on where their the the uh, engagement with HMA, the consulting group, is. Um, I don't think we're going to have a definitive answer at that time, but uh, it will it'll it'll put us in the right range of ballpark about where we are. That will be followed by item, item A2, which will be our CEO talking about our internal governance. That's basically our, our CEO's vision for, for how we remake ourselves internally. 
not the macro relationship between the county and us, but actually what the CEO does, at, which is setting the org chart. Next, we will go to, uh, we'll have discussions about strategy. There are three big items in strategy. First, we'll be hearing from uh, uh, the new president of the East Bay Medical Group, Dr. Chitra Kiliswaran, and uh, she is going to be giving us kind of a walkthrough, informing the board of what EBMG is and being aspirational if she can. Hi, Chitra, good evening. Uh, so she, she's in the room, and I know she's multitasking because she was just doing something with EBMG. So, so she'll, be, she'll be coming out of the gates. Then we'll be hearing about a vision for San Leandro, a strategic vision for San Leandro. And then we're, we're going to have a strategic, dis- uh, uh, we're going we're to get the background so we can have a strategic discussion about Alameda Hospital. Again, these are not action items. These are discussion items, uh, and this space will be used that. After that, we'll go into finance, block three. Finance will include uh, uh, a revisit by John Minot, who will talk to us about kind of our supplemental funding uh, options. Uh, we'll hear uh, the final Whitley report. And then we're going to hear more about what Kim just spoke to us about. Uh, uh, we're going to hear about the budget. Uh, and so, so uh, that. The last item of the open session will be board performance. We're going to talk about the stuff to help help us be better. What are our bylaws currently? What are our current policies and procedures? Uh, and and what are our expectations of performance amongst ourselves? And last but not least, how are we going to rate ourselves? Our our bylaws require uh, our our bylaws require us to rate ourselves. And 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 I think that's going to be important. So what is everyone's homework? Uh, read John Minot's uh, uh, packet again, so we can you can see that again. Um, uh, I ask each of the standing committee chairs to read their respective uh, committee charters. And we're not going to change it at the meeting, but I want you to come forward with ideas. Can you evolve our policies and procedures? I ask our trustees to reread the bylaws. We're not going to change the bylaws that evening, but to have an, a, a deeper understanding. Ultimately, we can't change our bylaws till we know what the macro governance is going to be about of us. And then, um, uh, Last, I want, I want everyone to come in with a strategic mind inset because we got a lot of strategic moves that we need to, to consider uh, with all, all these moving pieces. So with that, I'll open up to any comments for item F3. Uh, Trustee Jensen. Jeff, um, I may have missed it, but I was anticipating that you were gonna mention something about an Alameda Hospital discussion. Oh, I said it. Okay. Um, yeah. Well, with the said to San Leandro, but you meant Alameda. Sorry, sorry, sorry. I, I said uh, the strategic is East Bay Medical Group, two San Leandro Hospital, three Alameda Hospital. Sorry, maybe I didn't say it. My bad. No, no, okay. Um, uh, well, that's what I wanted to talk about, and I appreciate that, and, and it's very timely that yeah. um, that would be on the agenda. As you and I discussed, and as um, James um, knows well, the, the Alameda Hospital, the Alameda Healthcare District Board has been talking about and discussing our relationship with the new board and how the new board of AHS and the new leadership at AHS can can support um, Alameda Hospital. And of course, this is a, a big issue. It's a big discussion. There are new board members, I think, for AHS that may not be aware of the history of the joint powers agreement between Alameda Healthcare District and Alameda Health System. And there's um, a really important issue that we have to discuss, which is the 
state's mandate to basically rebuild Alameda Hospital for 2030, the 2030 seismic seismic uh, mandate. So I am most appreciative that this is on the agenda. I want to um, make sure that as part of the discussion, we include what was the um, noted in the committee assignments earlier in this agenda with regard to the um, the Alameda Hospital Seismic Committee. We we really need to reestablish that committee with a mandate to to address and ad, advocate first of all for um, for the seismic requirements. Advocate with the state to either um, maybe perhaps delay the seismic reconstruction or to fund the seismic requirements that have been mandated by the state. And then secondly, you know, to be prepared in the event that, that nothing changes so we can be prepared for an Alameda hospital reconfiguration or, or something different. Because as it stands now, the acute care beds at Alameda hospital will be, won't be around in nine years if every, if nothing changes. Yes, ma'am, I, I agree. It's a big item, a, a big time, a, a big chunk of time has been allocated. Actually, for any single agenda item, it is the largest chunk of time allocated in projection. My, my, my suggestion, and I'll, I'll defer to Mr. Jackson on this, of course, is the planning, the, if you will, the planning group, I would suggest for this agenda item, I would propose as Trustee Jensen, uh, Deb Stebbins, uh, uh, who is the executive director, our CEO and our COO, to, to, to kind of, I, I would suggest that, but I'm gonna defer that item uh, uh, to our CEO in that. But uh, Trustee Jensen, if you'll work with our CEO in that consideration. Is, Absolutely, is that, thank you. Is that, is yeah. that And thank you very much for, for, yeah, I think um, along with, with the budget discussion, this is one of the other things that really needs to be prioritized. And I appreciate putting it on the retreat agenda. Thank you. Of course, team, Thanks. right. Uh, hey. Trustee Blue, hi. Hi. Um, so the question I had, since we're going to have a section on finances, will each of the hospitals, uh, will we have a report from each of the hospitals? Uh, I, I can't make a specific comment. Uh, and, and I guess my question would be is, uh, and I actually trustee esteem probably can feel that, uh, is that embedded within Whitley question mark trustee esteem? Yes, sir. That's exactly what I was going to say. And I hope that my CFO gives a seal of approval that the whole goal of the Whitley report was to give an itemization of each of our core sites so that we could see what the financial breakdown is site by site. Because at this point in time, everything is in one group for financing and Whitley was going to help us break that down. And if I said anything wrong or, or omitted some details, please uh, spill it in. No, you're you're absolutely correct, correct, Trustee Eustin. We're the Whipley is prepared to present. They'll probably uh, do year to date or our budget for this year by entity, and then next fiscal year we'll start reporting it by entity. So yes, we've we've actually made huge headway uh, to kind of uh, over the years things have been grouped together into one big, you know. Um, you know, overhead pot across all organizations. So now it's all been split out so that we can really have a better understanding of what the true costs are and what our overhead costs truly are. When you put, you know, things like security and, you know, um, uh, maintenance into a, 
you know, a general bucket, you really do lose sight of the profitability of each entity. So um, I think you guys, I think it'll be good. And it will help us um, with the strategic planning that needs to happen. Excellent. Thank you, Ms. Miranda. Trustee Blue, satisfactory? Excellent. Other trustees on item F3? All right, let's, oh, sorry, Trustee Jensen. Um, thank you, Mr. Chair. I, with regard to um, what Ms. Miranda just pointed out, what our CFO talked about and the WIPLEA report, I, it would be helpful to see the WIPLEA report, um, the allocations prior to, or, or as we're developing the Alameda Hospital agenda item. And I also want to thank her for the direction given to WIPLEA because it, it is critical to ensure that that the costs are allocated correctly, particularly the cost that she didn't mention, which is the OPEB or um, post-employment benefits for all employees of the system. So noted, Trustee Jensen. Um, uh, any other comment on item F3? Great, let's close item F3. Item F4, hopefully this will be a relatively quick item. This is a process discussion regarding a board of trustees appointment to the member of uh, to to the EBMB EBMG board of directors. What is the context? EBMG, the East Bay Medical Group, was the physician entity, a wholly owned subsidiary launched by this organization in July one of last year. Inherent in that is 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 a board of directors. The board of director composition, as per the bylaws, those bylaws are included in this set of uh, uh, in this in this in our board packet, states that uh, from section four, it advises the board of directors has eleven directors for East Bay Medical Group, five interested directors that basically means employees of East Bay Medical Group, two ex officio members, the CMO and the COO, three community directors, and this is for us one appointed by the AHS Board of Trustees. To quote from section 4C, the AHS uh, Board of Trustees shall directly appoint one director who is not an interested person and is a physician or advanced practice provider. The AHS Board of Trustees may replace it, may, may replace this person at its discretion. So I, I just, I'm as, 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 as part of process, this needs to be on our radar um, I'll probably have uh, discussions with uh, uh, President Achilles Warren on this issue and then some with others. It, it, I'd be happy to entertain a volunteer to head up this very uh, uh, short ad hoc committee to find uh, appropriate candidates who can represent the mission of EBMG. Uh, but we can, did Trustee Asin just raise her hand on that one? I have a clarifying question. Oh, I thought you, I thought you were gonna take on another committee, dude. No, okay. I don't know if I had bandwidth for that. Okay, um, what does it mean to be an interested person? How do we know who the candidates for this would be? Uh, uh, I, I'm uh, there, there. There is a California Legal Code 11 something, but I'm going to defer to counsel on this. I, I think the short version is if they have a financial interest related to EBMG is the short version, i.e. if they're employed or contracted in some form. So we... I think in short, we would have to find a community member who doesn't practice here. Um, does that sound right, counsel? Okay. It could, it, could be a, it could be a community member. It could also be another physician who is on the staff who's employed by AHS. Ah, got it, okay. Yeah, there yes. were, you know, so, you know, the, the conflict is, you know, a, 
interest in EBMG, but not a conflict in the organization itself. So, Got it. Thank you for that clarification. So there are a number of uh, employee uh, physicians and advanced practice, well, I don't know about advanced practice providers, but physicians who work in our health system who are employed under Alameda Health System rather than EBMG. You, we all actually approved a five point something million dollar contract from UCSF Neurosurgery uh, this evening. So that might be such an example. So uh, that process will be in place. And Madam President, uh, Achilles Warren, know that we, we will get you your, 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 your director uh, and, and happy to have a discussion with that. Any other commentary on that? Wow, okay, item F4. Can I just that. ask, do we have a target date um, for either choosing one of us to be on that ad hoc committee and for making the appointment? Um, I'll defer that discussion to an executive uh, officer's meeting. <laughs> um, and then we'll, we'll figure out a time because we're going to need to find a way to take candidates, vet the candidates, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, the, the good news is that uh, uh, Dr. Achilles Warren has actually done a lot of this work and they're actually in voting right now with, for, for a number of directors. So there probably will be a, and, and the pool looks strong, but she only gets so many. So we, we might have an opportunity there and uh, that's sort of cheating a little bit, it, making our job a little bit easier. So uh, I'll, I'll, I'll have a private discussion with her and then I'll bring this back to executive committee if that's acceptable, trustee Houston. Okay, with that, we will close item four. That is the uh, much of the open session items. Item G are staff reports. Um, that there's actually a lot of good stuff on that. Uh, the, the CFO's report, the COO's report, the FY22 budget update, which uh, Ms. Miranda worked on uh, uh, a, a lot. And then a very interesting slide set um, from Tangerine Brigham on this county organized health system. I, I think it's uh, sometimes I wanna give attention because sometimes it's just easy to blow that stuff off because it's just as a written report, but, is, but it, it's, it's dense reading, but it's really important reading to understand. Does anyone have any questions for staff on items G1 through G4? Another exciting reason to attend the finance committee. <laughs> Shameless plug. Yes, ma'am. With, with that, we will close out item G. And for the audience, we are now gonna enter into closed session. The estimated time on closed session is around 90 minutes. It does not appear that there will be any actionable items, but we will come out after that 90 or whatever minutes and report out. So if you're here, okay. Uh, if, if, if you're not, have a great evening. And um, uh, we hope to see you at the, at the next meetings. HR, I believe is next week. Uh, and then uh, QPSC, I think, yes. And then uh, we will do our full board retreat. So thank you to the audience on that. And with that, we will uh, uh, go to closed session and general counsel will announce. We're moving into closed session to consider the items as set forth in the agenda. <laughs>